Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan E. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 29th episode of the Nauticast entitled, do I have to read this? I guess I do. Better Than the Songs, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Sansa 2, in which Sansa Stark is swept up in the glory and romance of the hands turning before being brought face-to-face with some very harsh realities. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., Wolfman Zach, and Joe L. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you, as always. I'm very excited to introduce our guest for this episode. You may know her from her podcast, Girls Gone Canon. You may know her from her excellent essays on Ashara Dane, among other things on Tumblr. Or you may know her as just one of the most eloquent defenders of Sansa Stark in the fandom. It's Chloe Ketchum. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. How are you? You know, living the dream, I guess. We're we're happy to have you. Absolutely. (laughs) Jeff, you literally asked me to do this. So I feel like... It's true. I just want to give a disclaimer that I feel like I'm being very uh, provoked by Jeff this entire episode, and he likes it, so... I I have been looking forward to this episode for a very long time, if nothing else, than to provoke you throughout this entire episode. So as the listeners are going to find out, I have inserted all sorts of provocative sayings and words and sentences (laughs) in this podcast. And our final discussion is intentionally intended to provoke some interesting discussion. I'll call it that right now. Interesting discussion. Meanwhile, I'm going to talk about my favorite chapter and just pretend these guys aren't here. (laughs) It's a really good time. It's going to be a good time. Yeah, it's going to be an excellent time. So um, in, in all seriousness, Claire, we're, we're super excited to have you on. It's a, a pleasure to have you on. And we've both, and I, I can say that I've totally enjoyed Girls Gone Canon and what you and Eliana do week by week. And I love your format of doing your analyses based around one singular point of view character until you exhaust all the chapters <laughs> and then talk about their wins winner chapters if they have some i really enjoyed your barrison episode a lot since i'm a big battle of fire fan and really looking forward to that in the wins winner i really enjoyed that and i love your quentin stuff too thanks man yeah we're uh we're really happy we kind of already collected them all now this is it you guys have had <laughs> aliana we've had both of you so uh, thank you so much for all your support over the last handful of months. We just hit teenagerhood, so we are yeah. moving on to Ariane Martel coming up. Uh, we, uh, we're we 16. Our podcast is old enough to drive right now, so we're starting on Ariane Martel's point of view next, and uh, that will be out September 7th for people that are not of the correct Patreon tiers <laughs> to get early, but uh, we are taking a little break till then, because I am going to Dragon Con, which Mr. Ooh. Emmett Booth here is also going. As well as other people in the fandom, uh, History of Westeros, they tend to go. It'll be a delightful time. It's my first Dragon Con, so I'll be the slender northern sparrow fainting in the southern heat. That'll be me. <laughs> yeah, You're going to be the next star character. <laughs> you mentioned your podcast being old enough to drive. Now I'm just imagining Ariane like, being given her first car by Duran, but like he doesn't teach her how to drive because he doesn't trust her enough. <laughs> So she tries oh, and it's anyway. Totally a convertible too, like totally a convertible. Oh yeah, and then she, and then she crashes into like a school and kills a bunch of people. Like, yeah, that's that sounds about Marcella. right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right she crashes into yeah. Marcella's classroom when she's giving a big report. This is a great alternate universe. I'm into it. Oh, yes, I think so. Yes, it's going to be great. So I'm looking forward to hearing you guys' podcasts about my in-universe girlfriend Ariane Martel, and it's going to be fantastic. And can't wait for that. And check out all of their previous work 
on Quentin Martel, most recently, Barris and Summy before him, and of course, Eddard Stark, which we'll be covering next week on the Not A Cast podcast. For our patrons, those of you who contribute $10 or more a month have the ability to ask us questions. And we have a question from one of our great friends on the cast, old Sadie, who is one of our sworn swords. And she asked this week, hello, boys. If this question is foolish, please ignore it. It's not foolish, and we're not going to ignore it. I was thinking about the proposed spinoff TV show being set during the first long night, and I was wondering if the Stark words are maybe prophetic. We all know that the season of winter is coming and does so a bit irregularly, but do you think that they might also mean that true winter will come again, i.e. the second long night? Or maybe Bran the Builder was confident enough that when he built the wall that it would keep out any potential threats to Westeros. Thanks again for the podcast. I really enjoy it. Well, thank you, Old Sadie, for the question. And I'm going to give our guest first crack at this question. So, Chloe, what do you think? Do you think the Stark Wars are prophetic? Do you think there's going to be a second long night? Or do you think Bran the Builder was overconfident when he built the wall and could keep out any potential threats to Westeros? I think there's so much lore and magic that has only been hinted about when it comes to topics like these. So that's what's so interesting with these spinoffs that are happening especially because George has kind of mentioned, especially with some of that Worldcon coverage that came out, that, you know, he's not very involved. He's given a slap of information out there for the writers that are working on these pieces, and then they're just running with it. So that was really interesting to find out from the Worldcon coverage. I don't know. I think that Winter is Coming is just what they put as a warning, almost maybe, for their house mm-hmm. words for the rest yeah. of their time for that reason. Whether it's prophetic, it could be, or it might just be, something that their predecessors knew would continually happen. Yeah, agreed. I mean, there's multiple meanings to winter is coming, of course. There's the long night itself, the metaphysical, magical, eternal winter, but then it's just a reminder of seasonal hardships and to just be tough in general. It first comes up in the context of the Stark kids having to learn to be tough and, and, you know, get past childhood, so I think that's definitely part of it. I definitely think we're going to see the long night come again in the context of the books. Uh, Martin's built it up too much, I think, not to put it out there. There's Jamie's dream in Storm of Swords, I think, is the clearest glimpse we've seen of what it might look like when he's alone yeah. in the dark uh, with Brienne facing down the undead. I think, the, for me, the only question is what causes it, and there's a bunch of different potential answers there. People have pointed to human sacrifice being involved, given that how crucial that is to the story. Something to do with Bran and Bloodraven and what they're up to uh, beyond the <laughs> wall. I think Euron is likely to be involved in some capacity, our friend LML has a great theory involving what might have caused the Long Night last time, being a kind of comet-related astronomical <laughs> disaster that might come around again. So more than one of these might be involved. I think that's it's definitely coming around again, and while the Stark words might not be deliberately prophetic, I think they might prove to be accidentally prophetic. I can see that. It's also of note that Catelyn, in her very first chapter in A Game of Thrones, points out how different the Stark words are from every other house. And she says, the Stark words... Every noble house had its words, family mottos, touchstones, prayers of sorts. They boasted of honor and glory, promised loyalty and truth, swore faith and courage, all but the Starks. Winter is coming, said the Stark words. Not for the first time, she reflected on what a strange people these northerners were. So, yeah, I I think it's important that the Stark words indicate something beyond like your kind of standard fare of or any of the number of, of noble house words here. The Stark words are a warning. The Stark words are telling us that winter, as in the others, are coming. And I do wonder whether... When the Stark words were developed, about when, whenabouts they, they came about, I do think there's a possibility that if it was Brandon Stark who originated these words, and maybe we'll find this out in the Long Night TV show scheduled to come out, I 
think in late 2019 or early 2020, I think 2020 is more likely. When winter comes? Yeah, when winter comes, early 2020, <laughs> like in January 2020, I think it'd be a great time for the uh, for the, the show to come out. I think that we might see Brandon Stark as a character in, in the show. I think that'd be interesting. It'd be interesting, too, if he is the one who originates the Stark words and whether it's something like the others are defeated, but they're not permanently destroyed. I think that's a motif that will be explored in this Long Night show. I think it was interesting, too, in this recent Worldcon coverage that um, I think, and Chloe, you had indicated this, but I think Martin has said something to the effect of some of these shows are based on passages from the world of Ice and Fire and some from only single lines from the world of Ice and Fire. So I find that fascinating as to what precisely he's referring to. We do know that there's a Long Night show. There's a strong possibility that there is a Doom of Valyria show in the works, potentially, and some of the other ones are a bit more ambiguous, but more likely to focus on Targaryen history, probably more drawn from the world of ice and fire and from fire and blood volume one, because we do know that George said that one of the impetuses for publishing fire and blood volume one now, as opposed to after the end of the main series was because of these successor prequel shows. So interesting thoughts. I'm sure we'll find out more. And I think I'm kind of excited for that. I guess we'll, we'll find more about the origins to these, the world of ice and fire in this, this upcoming show. I think it'll be good. I hope it'll be good. I don't. I don't know. I. I, I just hope it's weird. I just want it to be weird. I don't care if it's good. <laughs> you just, just want it to be weird. I, I. just want it to be bizarre, strange, lots of money burning up on the screen, fantasy, because that happens less often than good TV shows. So for me, yeah. that's a higher priority. I'm excited by the opportunity to just put bizarre things from the history of this world on screen. It, it's, it sounds cynical to say, but I honestly care more about that than the writing quality at this point because I just don't want to get burned again, like I did with Game <laughs> of Thrones going downhill in terms of the writing. So in terms of where I'm investing myself emotionally in the upcoming shows, it's just like, spend that money, HBO. Put something bizarre on screen, and I will applaud you. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, Jane Goldman is like kind of a plus on it, you know, of having her definitely, definitely signed on. It's a great... I mean, like, let's put let's put a chicken there for once and see what happens since it's been a long time on the show. <laughs> season four, right? Yeah, since season four. It'll be a show, I suppose. I mean, it's literally just HBO going, give me your wallet. We're just going to milk it for all it's worth at this point, you know? So it's like, it could be interesting. It also could have, like, shoddy writing. It also could be okay. It also could just be, like, some BSing. Who knows? I'm not uh, I'm not setting the bar very high because then I'll be disappointed <laughs> easier, you know? True. Also, they should really adapt that theory that Lan the Clever has actually turned out to be a woman instead. Oh, yeah. That one that's my favorite. Yeah, that's pretty great. That Lan the Clever was a woman. I think uh, Ashea from History of Westeros, I want to say, might be the person that got me onto that theory. Yeah, I'd be down, I think. I am the curious ultimate trickery. T- exactly. <laughs> I am curious, speaking of a character like Land the Clever, what the like emotional hook, what the jocular Tyrion-esque character is going to be in a show like that, because otherwise you run the risk of the problem fantasy faces with mass audiences, which is everything getting very stiff and people just kind of reciting world building and a general audience kind of snoozing off. Like I'm, I'm extremely fond of, of uh, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, as just, again, someone with a lot of money and talent just putting weird shit on screen. But it's also an example of how fantasy is just kind of can become a list of details that no one wants to show up for. And generally, I give Game of Thrones, the TV show, credit for avoiding that, for better or worse. It's avoided that. I I have the feeling that the prequel shows might end up in that pitfall, which I think they will avoid maybe by going again all in on action scenes, all in on weird creature designs, on monsters, CGI. That's the only way. I think that might be what the hook is. Brand the Builder is cool to think about in concept, but I don't care about him, like as a character. 
Would you care about him for ten hours? No. If he like if he like blows up mountains and like raises walls <laughs> from like the earth, then yes. Then for I 10 will. Ten hours? Yes, I will watch ten hours of that. I don't get nearly <sighs> enough of that. You're so basic. I I yearn for destruction porn that's not directed by Roland Emmerich and Michael Bay. Like I I need that in my life, and I don't get nearly enough of it. So I will be happy, or Zack Snyder. I will be happy. <laughs> I will be happy if things explode in a way that doesn't make me want to kill myself. That's what I'm hoping for. I, I think there's a temptation on the part of fans of A Song of Ice and Fire, and maybe on George's part for that matter too, that the lore is interesting enough in and of itself to create series off of, and I I don't feel that's the case. I feel that the lore is interesting, but not exciting or fascinating. What I find most compelling about A Song of Ice and Fire is the characters, as yes. we're going to be talking about in this Sansa chapter. And I don't feel like Bran the Builder is a character in my mind right now. Mm-hmm. Land the Clever might be a little bit more of a character, because we do get some interesting sides of a story, but I can't imagine Bran the Builder building Storm's End and building the Wall and potentially building Winterfell, all these places. is really going to carry a show. There has to be something else in there. So I'm curious what Jane Goldman will bring to the screen in a few years. I... I will at least watch the first episode, if not the whole season, even if it totally blows, which I don't think it will. But <laughs> I, I, again, my attraction to A Song of Ice and Fire is in the characters more than anything else. And the action sequences, sure, they're great, but they have to be, you, they're not, they're like scaffolding. They're not the actual basis and foundation of, of the story. That's always going to be the characters for me as we're going to be discussing here as we discuss every single week because our podcast is about individual point of view characters. So, yeah. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yes. I've, I've watched worse for less or for more, you know, like, so whatever. It's a show. I'll enjoy it. It's a show. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is a show. It'll be, it's it'll be, be entertainment. It'll be entertainment, and I think I'll, I'll look forward to it at some level. So yeah. appreciate the question, old Sadie. We will, uh, as always, feel free to submit, submit questions. If you're a $10 above patron, you can find our patron at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF. And as you guys are probably well aware by now, our two-hour and ten-minute analysis of King Robert the First Baratheon is out for all five dollar and above patrons. So, if you're interested in hearing us talk about that or some of our other Patreon-only episodes on the End Game of Stannis Baratheon, what's going to happen to Barristan Selmy in the Winds of Winter, why is the Winds of Winter taking so goddamn long to come out, and other things we have out there as well, things like Old Volantis and our first Patreon episode, which is about a Dance of Dragons and why it's better than a Storm of Swords. Please check us out on patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. So, appreciate the question. And now we're moving on to our main event, which is a Game of Thrones Sansa 2. And here is its synopsis. Two weeks after Catelyn Stark arrests Tyrion at the Inn at the Crossroads, Westeros is blissfully unaware of the coming disaster. But all of that is about to change in a few days. And who better to symbolize this bliss and glooming cataclysm than Sansa Stark, the eldest daughter of Lord Eddard Stark. Sansa Stark rides in a litter along with Jane Poole and Septa Mordain, and the world is magical and full of joy. You see, Sansa and company are on their way to the Hand's Tourney, after Sansa convinced her father to allow her to watch the tourney back in Arya's second Game of Thrones chapter. And it's a beauty and wonder to behold, at least for Sansa. Outside the city walls, the knights and lords have set splendid pavilions alongside of beautiful horses, wondrous sigils, and glorious suits of arms. But Sansa is enamored most of all by the knights. It's better than the songs, Sansa whispers to herself. And so it was. (laughs) 
for the moment. Sansa checks out all the great men at the tournament, the knights and lords who the singers had sung about. There is Jamie Lannister armored in gold. There the enormous Gregor Clegane. Over there, bronze Jan Royce with his bronze armor with magical runes running through it. And here, Lord Jason Malister, who had killed three of Rhaegar's bannermen on the trident with his silver armor. And then there's the curiosity of Thoris Amir with his red priest robes and shaven head. But he's not necessarily a figure of mockery, as Septimer Dane points out. You see, Thoris had scaled the walls of Pike with a flaming sword in hand during the Great Joy Rebellion. But there were others too. More knights from the Vale, Stormlands, Reach, and Riverlands are here. Sander Clegane is participating, as is Jory Cassell, though Sansa is definitely unimpressed with his regular-looking armor. Additionally, two of Ned's other household guards, Alan and Harwin, are hashtag in it to win it. <laughs> and there's other curiosities too. Jalabar Zoe in his cape of green and scarlet feathers scares Jane Poole, but Lord Beric Dondarrion with his red gold hair and his black shield slashed by lightning enthralls Jane Poole, who declares herself in love with the man. Poor Jane. Poor Beric. Anyways, we're off to the races. Joust. Whatever. Jory does well despite his unadorned armor and horsing Horus Redwine in one of the Frey Knights, but in his third match, Lothar Brune and Jory tilt thrice, and though neither man is not from his horse, Lothar is declared the winner for having a steadier lance. Meanwhile, the other Stark bannermen aren't doing so hot. Harwin is unhorsed by Marin Tramp, and Alan fell to Sir Balin Swan. But no worries for that matter, the jousting goes on and on and on. Jane and Sansa watch horses and riders plunge into each other with lances, phrasing, over and over again until the ground is a torn wreck. Jane looks away while the, other, while the riders collide, but Sansa watches and keeps composed to the approval of Septimor Dane. But as the day wore on, there were several clear frontrunners to the hand's tourney. Sir Jamie Lannister and Barrison Selmy of the Kingsguard rode exceptionally well, and the Clegane brothers fought with a ferocity that belied belief. Gregor Clegane himself was so ferocious that he, quote-unquote, accidentally killed a completely, totally random Vale Knight who he just, quote-unquote, happened to be riding against. And who was that Vale Knight? Oh, no one important, but we are going to talk about him quite a bit. The death of the man from the Vale was, had sent Jane Poole into hysterics, but Sansa's skin is in the process of turning to ivory. We're not quite at the steel stage yet. And she watches on unemotionally. She might have felt differently if the man who fell was her father or Joy or Sir Roderick, but this dude was just some stranger whose name she couldn't even remember. That said, she does feel sad, but not exactly that the man had died. Rather, she feels sad that there will be no song sung for him. Not a great look, Sansa. Anyways, after a boy shovels mud over the spot where the Veilman died, the tilting resumes. It's back to the beauty and majesty of the tilt. Balan Swan, who had defeated Alan, fell to Gregor Clegane. Lord Renly Baratheon to Sander Clegane. When Renly was knocked from his horse, very satisfactorily, I might add, he had hit the ground hard with a crack. Unsatisfactorily, he hadn't broken his neck. He had only cracked a tine from his antlered helm. As a token of his empty and Robert-esque careless generosity, he had offered the golden tine to Sander, who immediately tossed the golden branch into the commons. This resulted in a mini brawl as small folk fought over a little bit of gold until Renly walked in the crowd and restored the king's peace. More tournament feats follow. A hedge knight was declared forfeit after killing Beric Dondarrion's horse. Beric himself fell to Thoris of Mir. Others tilted and fell or rose triumphant. But by the end of the day, when the tourney was called to a temporary halt, only four remained. Sandra Clegane, Jamie Lannister, Loras Tyrell, and Gregor Clegane. But before that, Loras Tyrell tilts one last time against Sir Robert Royce, second son of Bronze Jan Royce. And what had Loras done before the match? Why, Loras had given a beautiful red flower bouquet to Sansa Stark herself, saying... Sweet lady, no victory is half so beautiful as you. Sansa had fallen in love with that moment, but it's all to spoil when someone else comes up to Sansa. Yeah, it's that goddamn motherfucking son of a bitch, Littlefinger, who gets into Lord Creepyfinger mode. He smells a mint and comments that Sansa has the tully look her mother had. He brushes a strand of hair from her face. 
You have her hair, Creepy Finger says before walking away like the goddamn grooming asshole that he is. I digress, but not really. Littlefinger's being a creepy asshole with Sansa, and that's going to be a super recurring theme in A Song of Ice and Fire. Get a job. Get a job, dude. But with the four final competitors emerging victorious from the day, it's feasting time in King's Landing, baby. Oh, yeah, we're going to get some food porn here. The small folk head off to get drunk or some shit, according to Sansa, but the highborn are off to eat at the riverside. There's roast aurochs basted with butter and herbs, mm. sweet grass and strawberries adorning the tables, and hot, freshly baked bread. Yum, yum. Sansa and Septimer Dane are given a seat at the high table, which is a high honor. And who other than the beautiful, wonderful Prince Joffrey comes to sit by Sansa? Sansa thinks back to the last time Joffrey spoke to her. It was at Castle Derry. The prince hadn't breathed a word to her since then, but now he's here. And oh, he had nothing to do with the death of Lady. That was Queen Cersei and her sister Arya. And she couldn't hate Joffrey. Not tonight, at least. And then Joffrey actually speaks to her. He compliments Loras on selecting Sansa for her beauty. When Sansa breathlessly asks if Loras will win tomorrow, Joff scoffs and says that Sander or Jaime will defeat Sander, will defeat the Hound, and in one blink of a moment, Joffrey is not wrong about something. Anyways, Joffrey the Creep begins doing that really awesome thing again by trying to get Sansa drunk by filling and refilling her cup with wine, but Sansa doesn't get drunk on the wine, she gets drunk on the experience. The magic of the feasts, the singers, the fools, but most of all, Sansa is drunk on Joffrey and how he showered her with compliments, court gossip, and even explained Moonboy's jokes to Sansa. But wait, before we can continue, more food porn. Joff slices a queen's portion of roast aurochs for Sansa. Then Sansa recites the chapter titles from the great A Feast of Ice and Fire cookbook and talks about more food, sweetbreads, pigeon pie, lemon cakes. But as Sansa's about to eat her third lemon cake, a mighty roar rises above the majesty of the moment. It's King Robert Baratheon yelling at Cersei Lannister at the top of his lungs. No, you do not command me, woman. I am the king, do you understand? I rule here, and if I say that I will fight tomorrow, I will fight. Oh boy, everyone is staring at Robert, but Sansa knows is readily embarrassed and near Robert too. And who is Robert yelling at? Ah yes, it's Cersei who is described in overt Snow White evil queen terms as having a quote, face like a mask so bloodless that it might have been sculpted from snow. The queen gathers her skirts around her and walks away from Robert with servants in trail, but Robert remains. Sir Jamie puts a hand on the king's shoulder, but Robert shoves him away, telling the kingslayer that he can knock him into the dirt before slapping his chest with a wine cup. Give me my hammer and not a man in the realm can stand against me, Robert yells. Jamie stiffly agrees and Renly comes, quote-unquote, helpfully forward to bring a fresh goblet of wine to Robert. More on that in our patron-only episode about Robert. When Sansa finally turns back to Joffrey, she finds him with a queer look on his face as if he wasn't seeing her at all. Joff asks if she needs an escort home. Sansa begins to say no, but then she turns and sees that Septimer Dane has passed out like the negligent mother figure that she is. Sansa quickly changes her mind and asks for an escort, thinking that Joff himself will take her home. But it's not going to be Joffrey who will escort Sansa back. Oh no. Joffrey calls for Sander Clegane to escort Sansa home and then stalks off. Sander immediately begins laughing at Sansa's not exactly unfounded naivety, to be fair, in thinking that Joff would be the one to escort her back, and then pulls Sansa to her feet to take her home. Sansa is now terrified and tries to wake Mordain to no avail, and now even Robert himself is stumbling off and the benches are clearing at the feast. The feast was over, and the beautiful dream had ended with it, Sansa thinks. And she's not wrong. Sander Clegane leads her through King's Landing, and Sansa follows all the while, keeping her eyes to the ground, ensuring she watches where she's going. And it's quiet. Silent, even. And, but she won't look up. She can't bear the sight of Sander's burned face, but she was raised as a true, courteous woman. She looks up and tells Sander, You rode gallantly today, Sir Sander. <sighs> 
You can just feel the air going out when Sansa says that, especially as Ray readers, because Sandra immediately snarls back at her to spare him of her empty courtesies. He's no sir. He's no knight. Knights are shit. And Gregor is one of those shitty knights. And did Sansa see Gregor ride? She did. He was, uh, she loses her words. Gallant, Sandra finishes for Sansa. No one could withstand him, Sansa says, remembering her courtesies. Yeesh. Sansa, Sandra mocks her as a pretty little bird, reciting all the pretty words the Sept has taught her to say. Sansa, to her credit, stands up for herself, calling Sandra unkind and that he's frightened her. There, Chloe, I said it. I am absolved of all future accusations of, of hating Sansa. I defended her one time. Are we good? Uh, we're good, pal. You just keep on chugging. I believe in you. Yes, okay. Good. Uh, my, my absolution is complete. Ish. Anyways, <laughs> Sandra Pilkey proceeds to talk about that random of no importance boy who died at the tourney today and tells Sansa that Gregor intentionally placed his lance to kill the kid. And when Sansa turns away, Sandra yells at Sansa to look at me. Sandra grabs Sansa's face and forces her to look at his face, telling her to take a good, hard look. And Sansa does. She looks up at him and sees that the right side of his face was relatively okay, not handsome, necessarily, but the left, it's a horror with most of the skin turned to scar. Slick black flesh was as hard as leather that gleamed red and wet when Sander moved. And by his jaw, the hint of bone was there in his face. Pretty two-faced imagery right there. Sander mocks Sansa once more, asking if, she, if she's got no compliments that her septa taught her to say to that. And he tells her the story of his burned face. And I'll read it at length because it's just amazing stuff altogether. Yes. All right, here we go. Most of them think it was some battle. A siege, a burning tower, an enemy with a torch. One fucking fool asked if it was Dragon's Breath. His laugh was softer this time, but just as bitter. I'll tell you what it was, girl, he said, a voice from the night, a shadow leaning so close now that she could smell the sour stench of wine on his breath. I was younger than you, six, maybe seven. A woodcarver set up shop in the village under my father's keep to buy favor he sent us gifts. The old man made marvelous toys. I don't remember what I got, but it was it was Gregor's gift I wanted. A wooden knight all painted up, every joint peg separate and fixed with strings so you could make him fight. Gregor is five years older than me. The toy was nothing to him. He was already a squire, near six foot tall and muscled like an ox. So I took his knight, but there was no joy in it, I tell you. I was all scared all the while, and true enough, he found me. There was a brazier in my room. Gregor never said a word, just picked me up under his arm and shoved the side of my face down in the burning coals and held me there while I screamed and screamed and screamed. You saw how strong he is. Even then, it took three grown men to drag him off me. The Septons preach about the seven hells. What do they know? Only a man who's been burned knows what hell is truly like. Wow, that's fucking intense. And what was Gregor Glane's fate? Was he punished for nearly burning his brother to death? No. He was appointed with the oils and knighted by Prince Rhaegar and Targaryen himself. When Sander is done telling the story to Sansa, a silence falls between them, but Sansa's fear is gone too. Instead, she feels sad for him. Finally, she tells Sander that Gregor was no true knight, and this causes Sander to roar in laughter, then growl that no, no little bird, he was no true knight. They walk the rest of the way back to the Red Keep in silence, only when they arrive in the castle and climb the stairs to the Tower of the Hand does Sansa break the silence by thanking Sander for escorting her back. Sander grabs her arm, and I'm just going to read the last few lines of the chapter, because again, bravo, George, this is just fucking great dialogue. The things I told you tonight, he said, his voice sounding even rougher than usual. If you ever tell Joffrey, your sister, your father, any of them. I won't, Sansa whispered. I promise. It was not enough. If you tell anyone, I'll kill you. 
And that is Game of Thrones Sansa 2, a simply amazing chapter that happens to have Sansa Stark in it. First thoughts, Chloe. Uh, initially, it's really interesting, Jeff, because you seem very attached to this whole idea of Sandra Clegane talking to Sansa Stark. But <laughs> I'm going to slide over that for the moment and we'll come back to it. It's it's honestly, it is such a loaded chapter. It's filled with Sansa's first real foray into her song. Right. Like after the disaster, first attempt of the Trident with her date with her so gallant Prince Joffrey. This is loaded with exposition on the King's Landing and Noble cast. And of course, the B-list cast that we're going to talk about later and also loaded with characterizing Sansa. While it's pushed into internal more in this chapter, the continued establishment of Sansa knowing banners of houses and their loyalties comes almost as a direct mirror to the last chapter you guys did. Catalan 5, chapter 28, which it's the chapter right before this. So it's really interesting that we get this huge tourney exposition chapter where Sansa just names people's sigils and their houses and history about them. We also get a really big hint of where Sansa's snobby attitudes come into play up close and personal. (laughs) And that is Septimore Dane. I know it's a spicy take, some Septimore Dane hate in this economy. (laughs) Uh, Septimore Dane is Sansa's main maternal influence when she goes to King's Landing, and she's supposed to be teaching her to be a lady, what ladies say, what they do, what they think, how they act while they're in King's Landing. And Cersei also becomes who Sansa thinks she should be like as queen. With very infrequent guidance and mentoring from Ned, Sansa kind of comes off as a spoiled brat in a lot of A Game of Thrones, because that's kind of how she's being taught. Septa Mordain's snobby attitude about Jory's armor, making him look like a beggar among the other men, transcends straight into Sansa, and Sansa remains composed during Sir Hugh's death, which kind of is her seeking approval from her maternal figure, which she does receive. Jory establishes himself pretty well in the tourney, though, which Sansa does note, but it's kind of a nod to her naive tendencies that she thinks about in Sansa 3 on how much handsomer Alan is compared to Jory in his shining silver armor, and how he's going to be a knight, which... To be fair, he actually helps execute some of the truest, most knightly things in letting the Brotherhood without banners form and leaving off on the field later on. And of course, in this chapter, Sansa discerns the difference between true knighthood and fake knighthood from Sandor, which we will definitely go into later. She learns (laughs) that from her main paternal role model in King's Landing, Sandor Clegane. Something about this chapter that kind of always hits me is that where Marjorie Terrell would totally attend court with her grandmother and her father and likely to be quizzed afterward by them. The second Ned kills Sansa's wolf, he disengages and he resigns her to her fate of being the wolf that the Lannisters take from the Starks. In the next Ned chapter you guys are going to go into, part two of the tourney, we realize he skipped day one of the tourney and sent Septimore Dane instead, which is kind of problematic. Sansa's attitudes and the perpetual preteen girl attitude is first, teenage wealthy girl attitude, but secondly, directly an environmental response from Ned. His daughter isn't going to understand how this world runs on blood because he's never taught her that. Ned <laughs> probably should have been at her side, murmuring to her which night was good, which was bad, the defense, the offense, what team they fought for, right? Like, it's like, <laughs> this is your first football game with your very opinionated dad, right? Like, Sansa does not get that education. And, of course, we end on her meeting Littlefinger, which is very telling from her point of view because she notices his eyes do not meet his smile, right? Like, she sees that. This child, Mm -hmm. this child woman sees that. She sees right away that Littlefinger's not good. He's bad. So a lot of people like to kind of theorize and play around with, oh, Sansa and Littlefinger are going to be a thing. But she knows, man. 
she from the very first moment she knew this dude's a creep a way yeah. major creep well said yeah as i said last week this is my favorite chapter in the entirety of the first book it captures the whole series for me this is the glorious day and the long night this is the tourney of Hall and the nights of summer and everything that befell those people it's it's all captured they got the imagery and the range of emotions, the the pageantry, the roll call of characters, as you were saying, Jeff. And above all, it's the arc of uh, disillusionment and enlightenment that Sansa goes through that Chloe was just talking about. It's, it's everything I could want. Yeah. There are so many moving parts in play here that we're going to get into. But before we do, I just want to gush about how Sansa 2 starts. <laughs> uh, because like a lot of great chapters, it teaches you how to read it right up front. The quote is... Sansa rode to the hands tourney with Septa Mordain and Jane Poole, in a litter with curtains of yellow silk so fine she could see right through them. They turned the whole world gold. And that's what this chapter is about. That golden filter, that filigree of Sansa's POV, rooted in songs and stories, and therefore in fantasy, and what happens to her when she gets a glimpse of what's underneath it. George has a great job of showing us the optics of the chapter and allowing us to experience these chapters optically, as well as engaging the other senses too. But here, I love the fact that it, it works as a metaphor to show us how Sansa's worldview is in this moment, that she's looking at the world as through a golden shade, through something that she's going to see the nobility and chivalry of, of the world. But by the end, I think it's interesting too, is that that cart is gone, that the carriage is gone. She's in the black of night with Sandra Clegane. That is a great way that George bookends both chapters with the the golden curtains of yellow silk at the very beginning that she could see the glorious world through and at the very end it's the pitch black and the dark of night that she's going back with Santa Clegane and having her notions of chivalry exploded by this guy who shows us what his opinion of knights is and whether that's true or false is something again Chloe has hinted at we'll be talking about towards the end of this chapter so yeah it's it's a fantastic wonderful chapter that George engages all of the senses but he does at best in engaging the visual sense. And he has to start with the visions being that kind of vivid and lush because this is the best damn day of Sansa Stark's life. This is what she's been looking forward to. There's yeah. the great quote from the beginning of the chapter, the splendor of it all took Sansa's breath away. The shining armor, the great chargers in silver and gold, the shouts of the crowd, the banners snapping in the wind, and the knights themselves, the knights most of all. This is what she's been missing, locked away at Winterfell where the singers never go, where... Her father's afraid to let her leave and even more afraid to tell her the true stories. This is what she's been thirsting for. And like any good fangirl, she's rattling off names and details and glorying in how much better the real deal is, hence better than the songs. That phrase immediately sets up Sansa's the young fantasy audience insert. I mean, even at that, it's silly because people think it kind of sounds silly and fangirlish, but think about in Dunkin' Egg in the very first moment you get Dunk arriving at the tourney and seeing all the pavilions made of silk and how they're swirling in the air. I mean, this is a grand event. This is supposed to be a grand event, and you are completely getting that. Yeah, I think it's a great point, too. But, you know, it's, it's kind of the inverse in Duncan Egg in that it, it opens with the burial of his mentor figure, and then he goes into kind of this this wonderful, glorious world. And, yeah, it's it's, it's all kind of subverted in Duncan Egg. It's subverted, for sure, in this in this Sansa chapter here. But it's, you know, it's, the, the great thing about this chapter is that Sansa, although she's experiencing this moment, she's not merely a spectator in it all. She's a participant in some of the greater aspects of this chapter and the politics of it. She's in the room where it happens, finally. That's right. Absolutely. And the way she behaves is 
politically important. It's coming under scrutiny. She's a noble girl on the verge of womanhood. She's the daughter of the hand for which this tourney is named. It's, she's a significant figure at court now that people are looking at her and wondering, just as they are about Ned, okay, what's she all about? How is she going to fit into our game here? And she's under yeah. observation, and she knows that. Quote, as Jane covered her eyes whenever a man fell, like a frightened little girl. But Sansa was made of sterner stuff. A great lady knew how to behave at tournaments. Even Septimordain noted her composure and nodded in approval. She's being watched by her teacher to see if she's learned. This is training, yeah. every bit as much as every, anything Sirio teaches Arya. And indeed, by the end of this chapter, Sansa has to, quote, look with her eyes at Sandra Clegane and face down the fear that cuts deeper than swords. Hmm. That's a great point. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> Hallelujah, brothers. Ah, no. <laughs> I said what I said. You're not allowed Cross to take the a line. shot, listeners. Out of this room. I brought it in. <laughs> out of this house. Out of this house. <laughs> I stay in this house forever. <laughs> Even more telling in that regard is the line, Sansa was dressed beautifully that day in a green gown that brought out the auburn of her hair, and she knew they were looking at her and smiling. It's not just her mentor watching, it's the entire court. It's the beautiful ladies and the noble lords. It's the society she wants to be a part of, more than anything. This is... She can feel herself unlocking it, that world made of gold. But to borrow from Chloe's favorite movie of all time, Thor Ragnarok, the question is, where do you think all that gold comes from? Whether you're talking about Joffrey's hair or the money behind the tournament or just the overall splendor of it all, what's actually, what's the root of this? Where, where is this coming from? Why does it exist? What does it mean when it's more than an image? And that's something Sansa has to confront as the chapter goes on. It's a blood yeah. tourney. All of it. Ex- it's blood money. Exactly. It is. It- and you see the blood flowing both in the blood money, but also in the, the blood of Sir Hugh the Vale when he dies later on. I do love that part of the chapter that you mentioned how everyone is, is watching her because we do get several characters who will be engaging with her at some level in this chapter itself and on into Edward 7 too. But we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But, you know, kind of talk getting back to that idea of it being blood money and being blood itself coming on here. We get a that kind of ideal of chivalry is kind of subverted with the death of Sir Hugh when he dies midway through this chapter. Yeah, that really is the part where you can feel kind of the gold curtain slipping a bit and Sansa gets to see what's actually going on and what this is about. Even the way Martin writes about it, just the most terrifying moment of the day, he calls it, and the youth fell not ten feet from where Sansa was seated. The point of Sir Gregor's lance had snapped off in his neck and his life's blood flowed out in slow pulses, each weaker than the one before. Ooh, and your, your skin just crawls and... <laughs> I mean, this is the moment the game becomes war. And that's something that Martin... That's a moment that Martin is kind of really into, you can tell. Especially in the first book. Is that that slipping point between innocent childhood play with sticks and to when it, when it becomes something, a matter of life and death. And it's in a moment of intense disillusionment for Sansa. She's the young fantasy reader. She's caught up in the, in the splendor and the glory of it all. She loves her favorite books, her favorite stories. Because she's not connecting war games to actual war. And Sir Hugh's death makes that connection, makes that link in her brain just for a second. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Ender's Game. I think we, we've referenced that in our last chapter-by-chapter chapter episode about how Ender thinks that he's playing a game throughout the entire time, but he's actually engaging in warfare itself, and that's revealed at the very end of the book, which is a great way that it's done in that book. It's also done well in this book, too. And I think Ned makes that point in the next Ned chapter about, you know, this is war. This is like, this is not a game. Like, people are actually dying out here. People people are dying. People are dying. So it's it's great that this is in the chapter itself, 
Although we're going to get a lot more into Sir Hugh as we go on. We'll definitely talk him about even more about him in Eddard 7 because that is a great haunting imagery then uh, great dialogue between Eddard and, and Varas at the end of that chapter about who actually killed Sir Hugh of the Vale. But what's weird about Sansa is that she's not really all that sad about Sir Hugh dying. What she's sad about is that he's not going to be in any songs. And I think it's... Like I said it's, in my summary, it's not a good look on for Sansa, and I think it has an impact a lot on how readers sometimes dismiss Sansa, myself included in the past, as being too caught up with the superficiality of the realm and not actually invested in the people that are actually experiencing some of the events that are surrounding her. She's 12, Jeff. She's 12. She's 12 I said years it was old. in the past, okay? It was a long time ago, like a year She's ago. She's 12. I wish you could see Chloe's face, good people. It's it's absolutely it's great. She's 12 years old. <laughs> She's literally 12 years old, and she's sheltered and rich. Goodbye. <laughs> That's the podcast. Come on, Chloe. We appreciate it. <laughs> As she says, she's just she's just kind of numb at this point. She's she's just been yeah. through her brother getting tossed from a window and her, her wolf getting died, killed. Dude. Her dog died. Uh, yeah, I describe this as the best day of her life, which it is at least at the start. But it's also like a respite she needs. This is the day she's been waiting for. This is the holiday you build up to after a really shitty year. I think she's just kind of weary and exhausted. It is. I think Martin could have written it better than just when she thinks about that there would be no song sung of Sir Hugh. She just thinks that was sad. He could have done. Yeah. A, he could have like written that a little more, at length, and given that a little more of a sentence than just that was sad. Like maybe it just it just kind of blips past. But I think emotionally, I think we're supposed to understand where she's at, given that she she does mention it would be different if it was my father. It's just that I'm just so screwed up from Lady and Bran. I think, I think I think we're supposed to understand where where her head is at in the scene. You're right that we are supposed to understand where she's at, like her headspace and time. Um, I, I think it's. I get the very kind of BTSD vibe from Sansa that she's experienced some very violent things on the road to King's Landing itself, and it's kind of bearing themselves out in her experience of watching Sir Hugh die. It reads to me, and I don't know if this is a fair comparison or not, but when you read about the experience of American soldiers in Vietnam, they became very numb to death and killing, and it just became something that they just experienced. And that seems kind of the case for Sansa in this in this this chapter because she hasn't quite processed the death of Lady yet seemingly and fully emotionally and that's and to be fair to her I think the PTSD aspect of seeing the death of Lady and also watching her betrothed act like a fucking asshole and psychopath to Arya and I I don't recall and I really should have reread the shit the Edder chapters before this does Edder tell I know Edder tells Arya but does Edder tell Sansa about the death of the butcher's boy of Micah nope. before at, at that point. Nope. Uh, Jane Poole tells Arya about it, so I'm I'm not sure how she knows and Sansa doesn't, but I don't think Ned is the one who tells them. After okay. uh, after Eddard kills Lady, he doesn't take Sansa aside on her own at all, not once, not to yeah. not he's dead. That's the next step. He has the talk with Arya where he informs her that they've come to a dangerous place and yada yada and wolf blood and you better be careful. But no, he does not talk to his daughter who's engaged to the heir to the throne about her engagement. So do you think that's a result of and maybe Ned having guilt. a bit of favoritism towards Arya and guilt over Lyanna? I think in a way. So something I've kind of talked about before, I'll bring it up again, is Eddard sees Lyanna in both of his daughters. He sees her and Arya as the wolf blood, the wild girl who ran off, who wanted to play with swords. But he sees 
Sansa in the way that Lyanna would listen to harpists play songs. The way that Sansa hmm. kidnapped a harpist at Winterfell, a singer, for weeks until her dad was like, honey, he has to go. We can't keep <laughs> him here. We can't just keep him. And she sobbed and said it would never happen again. Sansa represented all of the things that were weak in Lyanna and that got her killed and that falling in love for dragon princes and harps and songs and whatever. And he sees all of the stuff that could have saved Lyanna which is, you know, Liana as the Knight of the Laughing Tree, which someday you guys will get to, and I expect to be on that episode. <laughs> so if you don't, yes. this is like a, a blood contract right now, but uh, <laughs> I just... We'll like, see. We'll see. Oh, okay. Okay, Everett Borscht. Wow. Um, <laughs> anyways, so Eddard just, like, literally the language around when Eddard kills Lady is that he disengages from Sansa in the dairy hall. He's holding her as she's sobbing, saying, no, father, no. And he disengages from Sansa. And it's true of the rest of the book that Eddard does disengage from Sansa. He doesn't give her any of that information. She had an unfair a disability from the start. And I mean, in a way, yes, I can understand where Sansa, you know, seeing Sir Hugh's death and her coldness at it and that she felt sad that there would be no songs for him can be read as kind of a negative thing. But at the same time, to Sansa, songs are the highest regard. She thinks about, you know, Aemon the Dragon Knight and Nerys. Yeah. And she thinks about all these songs of Jenny and Duncan. And if you were in a song, that would be the highest respect in Sansa's world. So to her thinking, wow, the dead, this guy just died and no one will ever sing a song for him. And that's kind of how the world works. It's kind of her first, again, foray into this is how life works, little girl. And welcome aboard. This is what you just signed on to futilely, you know? It's not yeah. necessarily a sheltering so much as, oh, they should sing a song so much as, oh, they they won't sing a song. This isn't just how it works. It's the first yeah. awakening, which this entire chapter is the first awakening for Sansa. Yeah, I mean, That's true. everyone dies, but we're all just songs in the end if we're lucky. So I think Sansa, again, she says, great ladies have to behave in composure at a tournament, even though... At tournaments, even when no one's getting killed, they're violent, intense affairs with you know people sure. just smashing into each other, wearing heavy armor, and the horses. And violence is not a surprise to Sansa. What's a surprise to Sansa is meaningless violence, violence that has no context, violence that can't be answered or concluded or given some kind of resonance. That's what really freaks her out about this. That she said the world would forget his name too, and then immediately cut to the the like the stable boy shoveling dirt over the blood. So they can keep going, yeah. which is one of the like the least subtle metaphors in the entire series. <laughs> it's a feudal factory. That's what really disturbs Sansa is is that this is not heroic. This is not being done. It's not collateral damage for a higher cause. It just happens, and everyone just moves on like it. it it's not important, and that I'm sure rem reminds her at some level of how everyone reacted to Lady's death. You know, Arya was talking about a similar concept in her second chapter when she says, "You know, they killed Micah, and no one did anything." No one reacted. Yeah. No one said anything. Sansa's kind of having a similar moment here, filtered through her songs equals society equals good worldview, where she's like, oh, if they're not going to sing about him, part of her's wondering, well, why are they singing about anybody then? What makes Aemon the Dragon Knight more important than this guy? Why, is, yeah. why does the world work that way? You can see the seed being planted there for her later revelations, I think. I think that's a great point. I also think it's a neat character moment how, in Sansa's point of view in this chapter itself, how she shifts from this moment where she's sad that Hugh won't get any songs 
to being genuinely sad about Sander Clegane at the end of this chapter as a result of his upbringing. It kind of shows some character growth in Sansa Stark, that she is learning lessons and that she is expanding out in her worldview. And I think that's a good moment for Sansa. And it also helps instruct us as readers to kind of show Sansa's subtle shift. And now she's also she's not looking at the songs necessarily being good as being righteous, as being what is going to drive society going forward. And I think it's a terrific moment of character growth that George writes in. And again, I am absolved of future criticisms of Sansa because I praise her in this one moment. Right, Chloe? Yeah, Defensive actually, much? I wrote, I wrote a really uh, interesting <laughs> essay about that. You guys should check it out. It's on Reddit. Uh, about, True. <laughs> it's called The Gods Without Gods, As Empty as Brendan B. Fish. Make sure to search it up on Reddit. It's a great essay about logistically, statistically, and objectively how Jeff respects Sansa Stark. So I highly recommend it. They'll leave a link in the description of this episode. If you're listening, make sure you subscribe on iTunes and uh, the other things they're on and Podbean. So see how I cushioned that? I thought you'd like that, Jeff. (sighs) An act of passive aggression that Jews and Catholics alike can embrace. And us Protestants don't understand. It's love. Y'all don't count in general, though. So. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, though. It's, it's cool also, too, that Sansa's plot is rhythmically moving through these moments of the songs and how that affects Sansa as she's going forward and thinking about certain deaths and about who is responsible for them. Yeah, and Sansa ending her chapter where she begin the chapter sad about Sir Hugh, and she realizes at the end of her chapter no songs will be seen about Sandor Clegane, which by A Feast for Crows... I'm sure Sansa could say songs should be sung about that man. Yeah. She definitely brings these moments up over and over. She thinks about how Lady's death could be Joff's fault, but immediately she places that blame at Arya and Cersei's feet, kind of just pushing that off so she doesn't actually have to deal with the truth, taking off the rose lenses, and does the same here. Sir Hugh's death threatens once more to open that world up to her again to end the song, and Loras's entrance almost provides that safe escape Back to chivalry and fair ladies and flowers and magic. And the gays. Can't forget and about the gays. And the gays, yes. Sansa Stark is like, I'm queer. I'm here. Let's do it. Yeah. She's, she's yeah. like Tina Belcher in Bob's Burgers. She's she's kind of creepy, but she just wants a butt. She just wants a she butt to squeeze butts. and pat. Good for Sansa. Who she can blame her? like two good butts, right? Like, Sansa should have two good butts at this point, at least. She deserves it, dude. She's had a time. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to... And Hang up my headphones for a while and let you guys just go at it. And now you should see Jeff's face. This is great. Anywho. It's v I would like to add, too, this is actually, like, the first real death Sansa has mm. seen up close, personal, right? The boys have yeah. seen beheadings from Ned, but this is the first beheading Sansa and Arya get to see. Is it, The first beheading they get to see is Ned Stark's for the girls. Sansa and Arya see Ned's head come off from, you know, what... Sansa is told as treason, what Arya and Sansa both know in their hearts is not treason. So the boys get to see someone that objectively should die by the laws, by the rules, and Sansa and Arya's first death is their father's beside Sir Hugh. Interesting point. That's an excellent point. It bookends, obviously, Ned's story. And I, yeah, I hadn't thought about it. It's interesting. His sons watch him give the beheading, but none of his sons are there when he's beheaded. It's only the daughters. That That is an interesting contrast, hmm. for sure, in terms and of how the book is structured. they do say in the show, something I loved during season seven was there was a little exchange between Sansa and John. I want to say it was in the first episode, and John said, you know, oh, the girls, you guys didn't get to hear Dad talk like this. And she was like, yeah, he tried to protect us, you know, and so... 
I think that was a really good kind of pull for the show from the books. It's a good kind of point because he did. He protected his girls. They didn't go to these beheadings. Their first deaths were Sir Hugh of the Vale and then their dad. That's not... They don't understand death. They don't understand that blood price for the tournament. Good point. True, yeah. because of course it's you know covered up in the, the glittery filigree of chivalry and all the romance of it. And really no one represents that, of course, more than Loris Terrell. Yes. As Chloe was noting, what's interesting about this chapter structurally is that it's not just a straight line to hell. Sansa gets competing stimuli throughout the chapter, kind of bouncing back and forth. Sometimes it's reinforcing her worldview. Sometimes it's uh, contradicting it. And so if the death of Sir Hugh uh, rattled her certainty about chivalry, then yes, here comes the finest night of his generation to restore it. And you can just see that in the way Martin is uh, describing him here. He was the youngest rider on the field, yet he had unhorsed three knights of the Kingsguard. And Sansa had never seen anyone so beautiful. He's got this bouquet of a thousand different flowers and all these roses. And Martin describes him with a mass of lazy brown curls and his eyes like liquid <laughs> gold when he's giving the rose to Sansa. And she's sitting there and sitting there inhaling the sweet smell of it. I mean, this is like the chivalric image, right? It's a, it yeah. feels like a stained glass window or something on an old book cover, like a weathered painting you'd find in a monastery. You know, it's, it's genre-defining in a way. So, of course, it has to be undercut in all the ways later on, which it will be. Yeah, I mean, you get it undercut in great ways like that. Loris Terrell, as much as, you know, he gives Sansa a rose, which is interesting. I think it's a, a great discussion we can we can have either now or someday down the road about why Loris Terrell gives Sansa a rose. And you kind of wonder whether George is setting up the potential Terrell-Sansa match that we see early in A Storm of Swords here. But the fact is, the matter is that Loris is not interested in Sansa romantically in any particular way because he is he is gay, as we know explicitly from the show. But George lays it on pretty explicitly in the books, too, for that matter, too. So it's it's interesting, right, that Loris is, is singling out Sansa Stark for giving her the rose. Although, of course, later on, he doesn't remember actually giving her the rose, which I think is also an interesting point. Yeah, it shows how it's just a performance. This is just a, a thing you do for the crowd. It's not actually a personal connection. It doesn't imply a deeper romance. It's just a tradition. I, you know, Loris isn't the brightest bulb in the in the flower <laughs> in the flower garden. But uh, part of me wonders whether he might have been trying to curry favor with Ned. I mean, he Renly does reach out to Ned about the Marjorie plan, and Loris yeah. does reach out to Ned about about going after Gregor. Maybe Loris was just practicing standard politics by buttering up the hand's daughter at the hand's tourney. Or he might have just been like thinking, well, I got to perform heterosexuality. Who, who is the most hetero girl in this crowd? <laughs> who is, who's who's going to love my flower the most? And yeah, and this is the, the biggest moment for her. But as you say, he doesn't even remember it later when she brings it up to him in A Storm of Swords. Her image of him as the ultimate chivalric knight is, is undercut in a couple other ways. He, he wins against Gregor through trickery. In, in the next chapter, not through pure skill at arms. I mean, I'm, f I'm fine with the tricky pulls, but it's not exactly the most honorable <laughs> thing to do, as is noted. Uh, Ned denies his oh-so-heroic offer to go after Gregor Clegane, which Sansa says spoils everything. It would have been like a great storybook if, if Dad had just let that happen. So that's another undercut. And of course, the Tyrells will pretend to be Sansa's friends in A Storm of Swords, and then abandon and frame her, and here's where we should have a moment of male silence to allow Chloe to loudly boo the roses. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I'll join Ooh, in that. Right? Ooh. Okay, what, what part of moments of male silence was unclear, Jeff? Oh, sorry, I apologize. Wow, that says so much about Jeff. Sorry. It's okay, Jeff. You're forgiven by the females. We forgive you. We'll give you that one. Thank you. Yeah, it's very interesting, too, that 
in light of that rose, you think about like Renly, uh, something Jeff kind of mentioned in his summary earlier is that Renly was, you know, throwing things to the small folk, throwing stuff to the small folk and being just really jolly. And it kind of also sets the stage for Renly and his whole platform in the next book that he's like, yeah, I'm everyone's man. I'm, I'm, I'm every man. I'm King every man. Part one before Aegon, as Jeff likes to say. And uh, I also like this quote about the Tyrells from Littlefinger that's from later on in A Storm of Swords to Sansa. Uh, Mostly, honestly, I'm reading it because I forgot about this in general. And there's a really cool part at the end that I want to highlight just for funsies. But I also planted the notion of Sir Loris taking the white. Not that I suggested it. That would have been too crude. But... Men in my party supplied grisly tales about how the mob had killed Sir Preston Greenfield and raped Lady Lolis and slipped a few silvers to Lord Tyrell's army of singers to sing of Ryan Redwine, Serwin of the Mirror Shield, and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. A harp can be as dangerous as a sword in the right hands. Which reminds me that the Tyrells are so much of a house based off of songs, right? Like, they yes. are the most, they're glittering gold roses. I mean, they're just, like, so special and fabulous and Loris has a, a cape and a friggin horse coat of friggin roses which we'll get to later but that's ridiculous and bullshit and I do also love that last sentence that Littlefinger says though that a harp can be as dangerous as a sword in the right hands mm-hmm. which reminds me a bit of how in uh, a storm of swords when this chapter happens just a handful of chapters before is brand two which gives a certain story that talks about how a harp can be as dangerous as a sword, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a great connection there. How, how much came of Rhaegar's song in Harrenhal? The Trolls, uh, you say that they're, they're the specials, and they are, but they, they kind of have to be because of historically how tenuous their position as the Lord Paramounts of the Reach are. Because the Tyrells, as we all know, were the, the steward house to the gardeners before Aegon Targaryen put them all down at the Field of Fire. And the Tyrells have to kind of play this optics game exceedingly well in order to maintain their position in the Reach. Because you have several families who believe themselves to have deserved the Lord Paramountcy of the Reach. And the Tyrells just have to play the game and they have to play it better. And I think they do play a good game, but I think it's a... Fantastic uh, catch here, too, bringing in that quote from A Storm of Swords, where Littlefinger is talking about the Tyrells. I do think that maybe Littlefinger is kind of talking himself up a little bit. Uh, I think there's the the greater notion here is that they needed Loras Tyrell to be on the Kingsguard in order to protect Marjorie as the queen. But that's something we can get into more as we get into A Storm of Swords, for sure. What? No, Littlefinger talking himself up? Jeff, what, I know, right? what are you talking about? When does that happen? Ever? He would never. I know. He would never. Never. Especially not in Sansa 2. No, never. Not, not in Sansa 2. I mean, Littlefinger is just a super awesome, cool guy in Sansa 2, right? He's just that cheerful daddy figure everybody loves. No. Mm-hmm. Everything we were saying about how Loras's romantic gesture to Sansa gets undercut... That all happens later. None of that is really in this book. That's mostly in Storm of Swords or even in the next few Ed, uh, Ned chapters in this book. In terms of how yes. it's undercut within this chapter, it's undercut by Littlefinger immediately showing up. And it is immediate. It goes right from Sansa yes. lost in the fragrance of the rose and just like in her dream world. And then, boom, Littlefinger shows up. It's, it's, he, he's just there like a slasher villain. When Sansa finally looked up, a man was standing <laughs> over her staring like he's Mike Myers. Like, just staring at her through his mask. It's just like, it's a, you're immediately supposed to be, as Sansa is, quote, ill at ease with, with how he is 
presenting himself to her. He's he's staring. Uh, he's quote almost as old as her father, which like yeah, I get that that's a thing in Westeros. Blah 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 blah. But in terms of how Sansa's POV is reacting to Littlefinger, that's a signifier of gross and not not attracted yes. to what's going on. As Chloe mentioned earlier, his smile does not meet his eyes. Even so, even him being like a, a high lord and talking at least semi-courteously, which you think would win over Sansa. Even at this stage in her story, as Chloe says, she knows immediately that something is very off about this guy, and she doesn't like how this is going. And that's even before he touches her hair, which... Ugh. Ugh. You have ugh. your mother's hair. Gross. Gross. <laughs> is that in the show? Is, is that line in the show where he does that? No, I don't think... I don't think because Ned's physically. there. That's true. Yeah, Ned is there in the show. And then right he about that. takes that, that uh, line that did not belong to him, talking about Sandra Clegane and Sandra Clegane's life, which we'll get into later. But oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's true. That, that's Sandra Clegane appropriation, and he needs to put it back. <laughs> that is an unfortunate change, Drew. I mean, as, as much as we love season one, I think there are some moments of season one that. You know, you wish that, you know, the great thing about, I don't know if you guys, you guys have probably seen this, but in, there's a YouTube video of Rory McCann when he did the uh, the read for Sandra Clegane, and he does part of this speech, and man, it is fucking terrifying. It's awesome, though, too, the way he does it. He, it would have been awesome coming, coming it from from him rather than from, uh, from, from Littlefinger in the show. I wonder where that got changed in production. Yeah. Bummer. <laughs> That's a bummer. It's supposed to be a frightening story. It's not supposed to be snark from Littlefinger Hour. Like, you're supposed to be on the edge of your seat during that. Right. It's a big and emotional moment for Sandor. That's a huge thing. He doesn't tell people about his life. He doesn't tell people about what happened to him. This is huge. This little yeah. girl milked this out of him on accident. Like, she didn't <laughs> even ask for this. He just gives it to her. You know, Sansa is the first person he gives that to. The Littlefinger scene is working on a completely different emotional beat, so I agree crossing doesn't really work. I mean, what Littlefinger is doing is just projecting onto Sansa. He's not <laughs> yes. talking to her as though she's a human being who's right in front of him. He's talking to her as though, hey, it's young Catelyn. Time traveled here to fall in love with me. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> that's the reaction, that he's he, he's acting all he's acting all kind of <laughs> stunned and like he's moving slowly like in a dream and just he turns abruptly and walks away like he's not controlled there's no composure here it's really off-putting and, and disturbing and like the author's point is he's not interested in like debates over whether Westerosi society is just different from the standards of the modern reader like that's not what's interesting <laughs> the author at this point what's interesting the author is showing us Sansa's perspective on Littlefinger and Sansa's perspective on Littlefinger is that he creeps her right the fuck out not only does Littlefinger creep her out but Littlefinger's mask drops and drops around Sansa Stark and I think as many folks have pointed out that is going to likely be a part of Littlefinger's ultimate downfall is through Sansa Stark because Littlefinger can't help but never shut the fuck up when he's talking about <laughs> oh I did this I did this this was my plan all along and here we kind of get that kind of intro to that with Littlefinger being like you have your mother's hair like just not having the mask on that we see when he's around Ned Stark, when he's around the Tyrells, when he's around Tywin Lannister in A Storm of Swords. He's very much on his game there, but for the reasons of some of his traumas related to his youth, he can't be on his game around Sansa because he sees in her, he sees a, a young Catelyn Stark in Sansa. And I think ultimately that'll be part of his downfall. Yeah, like, let's be real. At this modern point in the story where we are all, you know, waiting for the Wind's Winter to come out, he needs Sansa more than she knows and more than he thinks he needs her. I mean, Sansa's kind of like his ticket out of 
all of his crimes crashing down on him, you know? Like, yeah. If he gets caught in all the crap he's been doing, he's dead, and Sansa is the only way for him to ride out of that dead. And he's yeah. he's specifically drawn to her in this moment because he's he his creepy obsessive drive is rooted in that exact same romanticism that we've been talking about that has fueled Sansa yeah. throughout this chapter. Littlefinger is, is a kind of bitter, resentful, disillusioned dreamer who when he challenged Brandon Stark for a duel, was clearly had the same kind of songs and stories in his head that Sansa loves. And Littlefinger is kind of the end result of not just that not working out, but taking it not working out as an excuse to just inflict yourself on other people. And so, you know, I I definitely didn't like Littlefinger before this chapter, my first time through. We already know he's, (laughs) like, framing Tyrion. He's obnoxious to Ned. He's just kind of an unpleasant person in general. But if that's all it was, he would just be an unpleasant person. This is where I start actively hating the guy because of his, yes. his, his behavior towards Sansa. Worse off is, like, he tells Sansa that her mother was his queen of love and beauty, which we also, like, can just go, that's a that's a gross grooming technique he's trying to go with, right? And then, mm-hmm. embarrassingly, he was pretty much defeated, like, within a minute in the duel with Brandon Stark. Very embarrassingly, like, not going to hold back. Pretty embarrassing. And he was 15 years old, and it was not attorney. It was a one-on-one duel for Catelyn's hand. It wasn't like a, you get to name a queen of love and beauty thing. That's not a thing during this. Like, he was just <laughs> not challenging a thing, Catelyn to be with her, which never would have happened. Hoster would not have allowed no. it. And it was foolish. And like like Emmett said, life is not a song, Peter. Petire. Peter. Well, he... Here's the question that I have about that. Do you think that Littlefinger is unreliably narrating his own backstory, or is he intentionally inserting a false narrative in his relationship with Catelyn at this point? I think he's falsely inserting it, just like he does with her when he bangs Liza. You know, like he literally says, oh, I took Cat's maidenhead, but we get it from Liza that it was me. It was me he slept with. It wasn't my sister. And... Yeah. All of us go, what? You know, so, I mean, he's projecting all of this on Catelyn. Like, I failed with both sisters. This one's crazy. This yeah. one never actually wanted me, but I just wanted her. Like, may as well try for this kid that knows nothing about courtly intrigues or love. Yeah. Get a job. <laughs> he does call Lysa cat in bed, so I think it's possible he's managed to convince himself that he actually did sleep with Catelyn. Mm-hmm. But even so, that's I think that's more massive self-deception than it is genuine belief. Yeah, that's a good point. The thing is, he hasn't progressed. He's still a romantic, reckless fool. And we know that because he changes his entire master plan to revolve around Sansa after this extremely brief encounter. I mean, it's... Yeah. It's but he's an opportunist, Emmett. He's so smart. He's the best player in the <laughs> game. He's going to sit on the throne at the end. Who's trolling who now? I, I thought I was going to be trolling you this whole episode. <laughs> the tables have turned, bitch. If, improv- <laughs> if improvising was awesome, everybody would like jazz instead of like 0.2% of people. <laughs> We're going to put that on a t-shirt. You do that, yeah. buddy. You would make so much money. You could do posters too, dude. We'll work on the marketing technique. Marketing director Chloe Ketchum. It is <laughs> it is technically possible that Sansa was part of Littlefinger's plans before this, but that would require him having heard about her and how she looks like Catelyn. It's like it's, I find that extremely unlikely. I think, yeah. especially the way he acts in this scene, it's like he's very like it's almost like dreamlike. Like he's stunned and moving slowly and kind of talking to himself. This does not seem like something he has put forethought into. So it's interesting to consider what his endgame was before this, whether it was getting Catelyn or whether it was he didn't have any 
woman as a prize in mind, and he was just going to try yeah. to destroy everyone. Yeah, that's because Sansa's that chick, yo. Exactly. That's from, that girl. <laughs> she on from, fire. That's that girl. From, from here to, uh, you know, his outlining of the Vale succession and her place in it, at the end of A Feast for Crows, Sansa only becomes more and more central to his scheming. And as you've said, yes, this is gonna what's going to make it all the more satisfying when she eventually takes him down, because he... he he, he bet it all on her, and she's going to turn the tables. And while I, I definitely don't like the are Sansa and Arya going to fight build-up in Season 7, <laughs> I thought that was was trash, the the actual climax and payoff of it with Littlefinger was extremely satisfying. So I am looking forward to something like that. that when, oh. when, he, when his throat was cut and he was still trying to beg and manipulate through oh. the blood gushing from his throat, so <laughs> that's amazing. So I, I am mean, looking Aiden forward Gillen to something like that. Just- Amazing, Aiden Gillen. Aiden Gillen was yeah. so good, dude. That was he. If there's anything that can be said for that TV show that we have sometimes watched, Game of Thrones, it's the actors. They really take on their roles and they get into it, man. They get into it. Yeah, Ugh. for sure. I am looking forward to something like that happening in the books. It will. Yeah. It will. But like, kind of speaking of of actors that are are gone now in the show, but ones that really did do a fantastic job in the mm. show. Uh, the, the folks who played Joffrey and Robert, they did a fantastic job in doing their whole bits. And it's funny, too, that Joffrey is the, the real-life actor whose name, unfortunately, I'm forgetting at this moment. That would be a Jack, um, Jack Gleason, Gleason, I think. Jack Gleason, yeah. Jack Gleason did a, is actually a really sweet guy, apparently. I know, right? He's so nice. He quit acting in TV and movies because of this show, because everyone hated him. And he went to only doing plays and just living his life. Yeah. But it, it's it's cool though in this chapter is that Joffrey is acting as the prince, right? At least for a moment, for a moment. Yeah, this is arguably Joffrey's last perfect prince moment. There is again that invented scene in the show, and he, like he goes to Sansa himself and is nice to her. Uh, I don't even remember, I don't even remember what the context of that scene is, but I remember it existing. It gives her a necklace, yeah. Exactly, yeah, he's in full on perfect. He's in full on perfect prince mode at this point, and I wonder, I wonder if Cersei maybe tried to get him to behave because she didn't want anything distracting from her leading Robert to the noose. She kind of needed Joffrey to be on, <laughs> on low simmer mode while she took care of business. I mean, obviously she didn't tell Joffrey that's what she was doing, but I wonder if she tried to tamp him down in preparation for that. But yeah. regardless, he's behaving well. He specifically, Martin notes that he's ignoring the wounds that Nymeria gave him, which is wonderfully yep. symbolic of what both he and Sansa are in this moment trying to kind of overlook and move past what happened out in the Riverlands and try to focus on the the nights that they have. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a great point that Joffrey is attempting to look the part of a prince, but there's a great little moment that just turns that time where Joffrey abandons his nobility and that moment comes when his father, quote unquote father, begins yelling at his mother and Cersei and that kind of changes him and gives him a, a new personality quirk, if you want to call it that, or, or changes <laughs> his, his attitude altogether in this chapter. There's a line after Joffrey witnesses that with Robert and Cersei, a quote, he had a queer look on his face as if he were not seeing her at all. So he's, he's very much kind of detaching and disassociating himself, I think, in this moment. It's arguably uh, Joffrey's most humanizing moment. Uh, is, this, yeah. is this reaction to seeing his kind of shitty parents be shitty? I mean, he does kind of immediately behave like a dick to Sansa and just kind of leaves her without so much as a goodbye, so there's only so much you can go. But it is... That is the only moment I kind of have a twinge of sympathy for Joffrey, because you get the sense he puts up with this all the time. Yeah. 
Uh, although I, I will say this too, when we were talking about Sansa's first chapter, we did talk a little bit about Joffrey pushing alcohol on Sansa in that chapter. And we oh, yeah. Was wondering what exactly was Joffrey planning with that. And we get that same theme repeated here where Joffrey is filling Sansa's wine cup and having his servants come in and fill it over and over again. So in the context of seeing these these things happen twice, this 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 thing happened twice, it does lead me to question whether it's really perfect prince mode or whether Joffrey is just acting the part to get his way with Sansa. Another thing that I do wonder, and I, I've been thinking about this since we did that Sansa one chapter, whether he's intentionally modeling his behavior off of what his father did and the fact that his father was always sleeping around with people that are primarily in bars and taverns and maybe that's something that he's adapting in some way. I'm not sure if that's actually what Martin is going for necessarily, but I do think it is troubling that Joffrey is trying to get Sansa drunk yet again in the this, their second only encounter in the books. So I would say that it's a very strong case of like, I mean, look at how the cat spa was explained to us, right? Like we know it's Joffrey. Joffrey canonically was the cat spa that, or was the person who sent the cat spa, pardon me. Yes. For Bran. And he did that because he heard his dad saying, you know, oh, that kid should just die. That sucks. So Joffrey does take a certain amount of pride in being a stag and being a Baratheon and ruling the throne in his name. Lannister may have the gold, but they do not have the name that rules the throne. And he realizes that and he embodies his quote unquote father. And I mean, to be fair, this is the nicest thing that Joffrey does for Sansa really ever is letting her go home with the hound. Let the let Sandor Clegane, because I'm not a rude bitch. <laughs> I'm not going to call Sandor Clegane by his uh, his Lannister name. He's Sandor Clegane, not the hound. He's not a dog. He's also not a sir. Get that right. But uh, sending Sansa home with Sandor is a great amount of wake-up call because, I mean, the way Robert acts, the way Joffrey responds to Robert's acting, and the way that Sansa kind of inhales that information is really interesting. That's a great point, yeah. it's You've got Joffrey observing and then kind of Sansa observing Joffrey. So, again, you have these sense of all these people watching each other and kind of judging their behavior. And, yeah, it's it's kind of wretched and fascinating to consider what Joffrey learned from Robert and when We touch on this a little bit in our uh, Patreon-only episode on Robert Baratheon. It's part of the yes. legacy that Robert leaves behind. But yeah, speaking of Robert, we have not seen him in a while uh, leading up to this this part of the chapter. I mean, not this part of the chapter, this part of the book. We have not seen him since Derry in the first few chapters in King's <laughs> Landing. Robert is uh, is completely absent, but now he comes uh, roaring back into the text, quite literally. And it's interesting that he's in the exact opposite mode uh, to when we last saw him. When we last saw him at Derry, he was just letting Cersei do whatever uh, she wants. And now he's just screaming at her and insisting that, no, he's going to do whatever he wants. But even though it's the exact opposite mode, it's just as unsympathetic. Just as much the sense that everything depends on this guy and he's being really irresponsible and childish about the authority he has in his hands. And he's just yelling, I am king here, which of course brings to mind Tywin's famous line about what it means to have to say, I am the king. And, you know, <laughs> makes makes you wonder if Robert is that different from Eris, if they're kind of insisting on this same, I am the king and everyone will do what I say because I'm in charge of this room. And, you know, I think Robert's clearly sensitive about that, you know, that comparison to Eris. Not only does he bring it up to Ned, but he immediately in this moment feels the need to knock over Jaime and call him Kingslayer, just to remind himself that no, 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 I'm still in charge of the guy who killed Eris. I'm still in command here. He's insecure. He's 
boasting, he's drinking, he's yelling, he's staggering about. Like, this This is who's in charge. This is the system that Sansa wants to take part in. This is what all the grand chivalry of Robert's Rebellion led to. Maybe Sansa shouldn't want to be part of this. It's such an important passage because this is exactly what Sansa sees. She sees a drunken, brutish king attacking the woman he's sworn to love in the songs, his queen. The quote from the chapter is, The queen's face was a mask, so bloodless that it might have been sculpted from snow. She rose from the table, gathered her skirts around her, and stormed off in silence, servants trailing behind. This completely shapes Sansa's viewpoint later on, and it makes Cersei, in her mind, the good one, and it's someone that she can trust. She sees Cersei as the wronged party, so when Cersei appeals very sympathetically to Sansa later on, after Ned has been imprisoned, uh, it really smooths over why Sansa trusts Cersei, why she thinks that's okay. She just watched Cersei get her owned in front of the whole entire court at a feast and her husband be an absolute asshole toward her. I mean, Sansa saw this. It's it's not like Robert is this chivalrous king that's trying every second and going, Cersei, my <laughs> love, I brought you these golden roses after our beautiful tourney and our beautiful kingdom. It's not like that. It's 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 very not like that. It's not good. It's not good, but it's also too helping to shape our view of Sansa as well, because we're going to talk about in the next Ned chapter, Varys reveals, and you can question whether Varys is telling the truth here, but I, I tend to think he's telling the truth, that the plan was for Cersei to openly challenge Robert at this moment and get and force Robert to fight by forbidding him to fight. So Sansa is seeing a wronged woman, but she's not seeing the low cunning that Cersei is trying in this chapter to make Robert fight and to get the king killed so that she can plant her own son with Jamie onto the Iron Throne. And I think that's always important to keep that kind of broader perspective in mind. I mean, one of the things we that kind of sometimes gets lost when we do these chapter by chapter analyses is that you have to take into context all the things that happened before and all the things that happened after, which is cool because we're doing this in a reread context. And it does help us to to shape our view of who Cersei is and what her plan ultimately is. It also helps us, too, in shaping our perspective why Sansa would go to Cersei in order to tell her about Ned's plan to get the kids out of King's Landing and inform Stannis Baratheon and name him uh, name him king. So it's it's all in perspective, and it's all hopefully it gets it all gets broadened out as we're getting to the next Ned chapters as we're going to be progressing through Sansa's arc and Ned's arc, and of course Cersei's arc when we get it in the Feast for Crows. Yeah, Sansa sees what Cersei intended her to see. Sansa sees the public right. performance, the face. And she's describing right. Cersei's face, not the thoughts behind it. That gets into the themes of this entire chapter. That gets at what happened with Loras. That gets at what Sandor is going to talk about. It. It's This whole chapter is about this, this image Sansa has fallen in love with and how she deals with it when that image turns out not to be true. It just turns out to, to be more complicated. And I think it's... Just, that's what really grounds the chapter is her arc through it, as we'll see much more when we get to Sandor. Otherwise, it would just kind of yes. be deconstruction for the sake of deconstruction, which, as we've talked about, is not something we're especially fond of and not something no. that Martin tends to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. Yeah. Thank All you, good sir. Points. <laughs> but yeah, with, <laughs> with Robert, it's it always comes back to, as we've said in previous episodes, it always comes back to his youth and that he's lost it and that he's lost everything that went with it. 
when he's saying, quote, the great knight, this is to Jamie, I can still knock you in the dirt. Remember that, Kingslayer? He slapped his chest with the jeweled goblet, splashing wine all over his satin tunic. Give me my hammer, not a man in the realm can stand before me. It's very telling. He says, still, I can still knock you in the dirt. That's, that's, that implies he's getting worried about this, that he's aging, that he's not the warrior he used to be. And in the very next chapter, of course, he'll be too fat for his armor and he can't fight in the melee. Yeah. As for uh, not a man in the realm can stand before me, well, how is it that Sansa describes Gregor? Oh, right, no man could withstand him. So Robert <laughs> is unknowingly comparing himself to Gregor. So maybe that's not a good thing to be, buddy. Sansa is talking about the songs and is describing this as better than the songs. Robert still has that kind of romantic perception too that he's exactly. still in full Robert's Rebellion mode that he can still stand before Rhaegar and the Trident well not stand before him because they're of course on horses but <laughs> metaphorically stand before him on the Trident and still cave his breastplate in he could still defeat Jamie Lannister in battle which is not true I mean uh, as much as I love not love but uh, as much as I respect Robert's warfighting ability He's not the same man he was when he was 18 years old on the Trident. He's not the same man that fought in the Greyjoy Rebellion. He's a man now that, as Ned describes him back in his first chapter, that the 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 that ruling and the and the crown have taken their tolls on him. He's he's fat. He's overweight. He's drunk, more often than not, and he's drunk in this chapter too. And it's a great, you know, kind of comparison here that the other drunk character that we're going to meet in this chapter is none other than Sander Clegane. <laughs> The feast was over, and the beautiful dream with it. That's such, a, that's such an important line for this chapter in Sansa's whole story. It applies to Robert. It applies to Sir Hugh of the Vale. It eventually applies to Loras, if what happened on Dragonstone yes. is anything like what we hear about. And it applies, arguably more than any of them, to Sandor Clegane. And yeah, everything about this, everything about this chapter is fantastic, but it all comes to a head with this conversation. This is, this is really what brings all the themes of it together and really what puts it over the top for me as, as the best chapter in A Game of Thrones is the crown jewel of this first book. This, this, this scene is just amazing. This is Sansa the true believer versus Sandor the cynic who once believed. And it really does feel like an epic confrontation between ideals. It expands on that little brief encounter between her and Littlefinger. This really unfolds Sansa's depth in a way. Uh, I think the reader doesn't see her more than just a 12-year-old girl that's been sheltered and raised on songs. You know, no one realizes that. And Sandor, not only does Sansa provide Sandor a foundation for his depth through these chapters, but he provides her a foundation for his depth. That's an excellent point. It's really a give and take. It's not just Sandor kind of growling at Sansa. They're, they're both kind of feeling each other out. And Sansa's trying to understand how she can make room for Sandor within her worldview, and it's like the Tyrion-Penny relationship, where Sandor's trying to understand how Sansa can still be so optimistic in a world that objectively sucks, especially <laughs> since Sansa has now encountered evidence that the world sucks with the death of Lady. <laughs> so you can sense Sandor going, why does she still think this? Why is she still saying nice things? Why is she not angry and mean like me? That's the only <laughs> way to be, dang it. What's wrong with you, kid? Sansa's skills as a noble lady in court, which we were talking about earlier in the episode, is what's kind of on the line for her in this chapter they were being explicitly pushed to the limit but she's determined to do her duty as Jeff said in his synopsis you know, Sansa could not bear the sight of him he frightened her so yet she had been raised in all the ways of courtesy a true lady would not notice his face she told herself and I love that <laughs> Sansa's upbringing has instructed her that Sandor is owed respect and kindness regardless of how he looks which is wonderful and it's interesting because it suggests that Westeros maybe can be saved by people actually living up to their stated values. Like they say about Dunk, a knight who remembered his vows. 
suggesting that, hey, maybe the problem is not the nice vows. The problem is that no one's living up to them. Maybe these institutional values could be really radical and help people you know, heal and change their society if people actually stuck to them instead of just paying them lip service. Like, where's the accountability? There's no accountability for it in the society. People pay yeah. you off for being a dirty knight nowadays. You know, I mean, there's no... There's no surefire way people don't uh, put value on the true knight as much as they used to because now it's just, you know, sinners and no saints. Yeah, fantastic point. You know, Sansa's kind of insistence that that these values can be lived, that she can live up to these standards and, and treat people fairly and the world will work and reward her for that, that, that has to come up against Sandra's argument, which is that Sansa's courtesy is not, in fact, genuine kindness. That what it is is an artifact of a hypocritical society obsessed with covering up its regular atrocities with superficial niceties. And that Sansa is not reaching out to him, is not being sweet to him, because of course Sandor is convinced that no one could ever actually be nice to him. Sandor is, in his head, Sansa is just pretending. She's just playing a game. She's just repeating words that were taught to her. And it's, it's nothing, hmm. nothing meaningful. Spare me your empty little compliments and your sirs. I am no knight. I spit on them and their vows. So for him, Sansa's compliments... And the knight's vows are parts of the same problem. They're part of the same system, which is this, this hypocritical society that does not live up to its own standards. For him, Sansa is just the female version of that. I don't think he's, I don't think he's equating her with Gregor in his mind, but I think he's equating her with Rhaegar, maybe like someone who is unthinkingly hmm. allowing the brutality of the system to keep going. Yeah. Um, again, agreed. And <laughs> well, as always, I think <laughs> great points. Thank you, brother. You're I mean, I, uh, I agree, but she is 12, so. <laughs> Here we go again. Just want to make sure that's reminded. She's 12 years old. Oh, I'm not saying that she has to confront what, what Sandor is. Right, I'm not saying, right. San, I'm not saying Sandor's perspective on her. She those niceties and courtesies so young that I get it. I'm just saying, remember, she didn't create this system she's been birthed into. She just happens to be there. I'm not saying Sandor is right to think about her that way. He's completely projecting onto her as much as Littlefinger is. I'm just saying that's what he thinks of her and her worldview at this point. It's completely yes. unfair. Yes. But but that's that's his take on it, and she has to she has to kind of push push back against that. I mean, that's it's the same dynamic you see at the Hollow Hill when I mean, the yes. when he's basically Sansa is swapped out for Beric. As, as the I true mean, believer in that argument, and Sandor is pushing hmm. back against him. And of course, Sansa doesn't quite take it laying down. I mean, she continues on with her courtesies, and she says, you know what, I will finish this conversation, and I will be a lady, and I will say the things, and it will be fine. I mean, if you can describe Sansa in one phrase, it's that her catchphrase is courtesies a lady's armor. I think she uses that to, to great effect here, because I, I think one thing that some people, me especially in the past, maybe didn't see is that Sansa's in real danger here from Sander Clegane. I mean, as as much as Sander Clegane is Joffrey's dog, he's not in his right mind here. He's horribly drunk. He's been in the presence of his brother, who he doesn't see that often from all from what we understand after Gregor left or after Gregor was knighted, that Sander, you know, found service with the Lannisters and as we know from later on, Gregory Clegane didn't leave his keep all that often, except for fraternities and for wars. So he's in a terrible emotional state himself. And there's a real danger in that here because he's also drunk. He's drunk as shit. <laughs> and he can do terrible things to Sansa because 
they're alone. They're in King's Landing. They're just two people walking through the night. As much as I, I could criticize Sansa, the way that she interacts with Sandra Clegane, I think she does a fine job of sticking up for herself at points and using courtesy as a means of defense against a brute in Sandra Clegane, who's, I mean, he's not 100% a brute here, but not he's not 100% a brute, but he's 100% a brute here for sure. And to that fact, I mean, I think we should give that same consolation to Sandra Clegane, who, you know, he's emotionally, he's pretty... He's pretty fucked up in this moment, man. He's yeah. just had to deal with his brother. He's had to deal with the trauma of his face being burned off when he was a kid. And now he has this girl who, as we'll get into later, has a few pulls and ties to his own life and who kind of represents to him this innocent naivety, this sweet like innocence. And he has to deal with that, man. Like he doesn't he doesn't just get to go, it's this dumb girl. He gets to go, wow. This girl knows because she's not there yet, but man, her life's going to suck and she has no clue. I mean, he's thinking that the whole time. Yeah. And he's specifically mocking not just her courtesies, but her whole song-based worldview. When she's trying to describe Gregor and she says, yes, he was gallant, the hound finished. He's he's (laughs) mocking her words and how she describes everything as, as being straight out of the bard's playbook, so to speak. Not very nice. This is, of course, despite having once loved knights himself. That's the great part of his story when he's talking about how he wanted Gregor's toy more than anything. That that childish glee at this wooden knight that could actually move and you can make it fight. You know, it's 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 very, as Gully says, very youthful, very innocent, very sweet, very much like yeah. Bran more than anybody. And, uh, you know, Bran got thrown out a window for his trouble and, and Sandor got his face shoved into the fire. So what we're seeing in this scene is Sandor telling Sansa that, you know, this is what love for stories and songs got me. It made me vulnerable to this attack by someone that the songs can't explain. My big brother, who's a monster yeah. in his own right and broke all bonds of family and fraternity. You know, the, the values I was taught to uphold, they, they have no room for what Gregor did to me. And so, I, and so I had to give them up, and you have to give them up too. It's also great how uh, Sandra Clegane describes Sansa as a songbird throughout this chapter and starts mm-hmm. to call her that. And I think that's intentional too in that she is personifying the... The life of songs and the, the the singers and what the singers are, how the singers explain the world and how they're lying essentially about the world and how wonderful these histories are and I think it's it's a terrific character moment for Sandra Clegane that he identifies who Sansa is at this early juncture, even though he's totally drunk and totally fucked up on all the emotions and experiences that he's had during the day and being reminded of this the very real tr- the very real trauma that he experienced in his youth. So it's really I think it's great how this chapter really snaps everything into place and how it really helps to how it really helps to how it really helps to shape us shape our perception for who Sandra Clegane is and especially how his story ends. Yeah, and even more even more significant than Sandor's kind of critique of the image of knighthood in his backstory is the way he connects it to social institutions at large. My father told everyone my bedding had caught fire and our maester gave me ointments. Ointments. Gregor got his ointments too. Four years later, they anointed him with the seven oils and he recited his knightly vows and Rhaegar Targaryen tapped him on the shoulder and said, Arise, Sir Gregor. So not only did his brother burn off half his face, but his father lied to cover it up and Rhaegar Targaryen, the beloved and respected prince of Dragonstone, validated Gregor, gave him a significant place within the power structure. And so this is, this is what broke Sandor, the, the knighting of one of the worst people in the series. And this, the, 
this, there's a lie about his most horrible and intimate moment make, being made into public reality. And it's, it's not just, it's, it's a systemic critique now instead of just a personal one. This is no longer just Westeros contains men like Gregor Clegane. It's Westerosi high society has elevated men like Gregor Clegane. That the, the system has incorporated and benefited from a, from a person like him. And so it's the same system that's going to break every promise it made to Sansa Stark. As we've been saying, her father, father brought her into hell and did not prepare her for it adequately at all. Septim Ordain, as we said, failed to look after her at the feast. Joffrey and Cersei will betray her again and again. The Tyrells will abandon her. Dantos sells her out. Littlefinger manipulates and preys on her. The only one who says he'll keep her safe and seems to mean it is Sandra Clegane, the not knight. Although I completely agree he's still very dangerous. And I'm very glad <laughs> she did not go with him at the Blackwater because I think that would have ended real poorly. But yeah. this is when... For me, at least, Martin's kind of social political critique in this series really hits home for the first time. This is this is where you really feel it in your gut of what good is such a system? What what use are the glory and excitement of the hands turning as if this is what they're covering up? Why sing songs if they're just lying to you? I think uh, a lot of good points are made in this about the system. I mean, I think that's what this kind of shows. It shows Sansa kind of coming to terms, taking those golden rose lenses off of her glasses and going, <laughs> okay, this is something new that I wasn't prepared for. Something new. And it's the same society. Like Emmett said, it's going to break her. It's not what she expected. She begged her father to keep a singer in Winterfell for months past when they should pay for it. You know, I mean, Sansa wasn't prepared for the lies and the intrigues and the schemes and the political aspects whatsoever. It really kind of hits home at a criticism of both her father and of Septim Ordain in that Ned, for whatever reason, most likely, in my opinion, related to his traumas, didn't prepare her for what to experience. And, and Septim Ordain totally falls down in her job and only look, looks at the optics of what Sansa is doing, how Sansa's acting like a lady by not flinching at when the knights are colliding with each other instead of preparing her for what this is going to mean and what these these men are going to be doing in a short little while. I mean, all of these guys I'm going to talk about here in a little while are going to be involved in the War of the Five Kings in some way or another, and a lot of them are going to die in the War of the Five Kings, and this is all a precursor to that great event which is going to be animating the next, really, the next the rest of the series, as far as I'm concerned, because Stannis is still fighting it out in the north, and Tommen is still the king in the south, and it is kind of, it does feel like that the major mentor and father and mother figures at this juncture in the story have both let Sansa down, and now you have someone who is telling her what it's like, and it's not someone who is as caring and loving as Ned and Septim Ordain should be. It's someone who is much more brutal but also much more honest i mean it's he's the dude who says it's not me who's awful it's the world that's awful and i think that's who sandra clegane is and even if he even if it's as not nice and unkind he's still the one the only one who's telling her the truth and the reality of what's going on in the world around her i would argue it isn't just sandra clegane telling his truth so much as it's all he will subscribe to he refuses to look at it any other way, and Sansa and him both played each other in that way that Sansa finds is beautiful. Everything is a beautiful song from a book, and, you know, knights and ladies and maidens, and Sandra tells her that's not how it was. I had the same ideas, uh, hmm. and it's interesting in that because not only does Sansa not, like, she... 
she accepts this behavior from Sandor. She learns this behavior because A, it's the first person that's actually treated her like a person in King's Landing. <laughs> Let's be real. No one else has really treated her like a human, right? And it also gives to like this inherent goodness that Sansa has inside of her soul. We see it later when she picks Lancel Lannister up off her feet around the Battle of the Blackwater and says, you know, like, Lancel, you're looking so strong, even though we all know Lancel looks like a piece of shit at this point, yeah. you know, like he looks like crap. It's things like that where Sansa's courtesies outweigh kind of the pain factor of doing something. And I think Sandor is definitely where she learns that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's excellent to consider how Sansa reacts to this challenge to her worldview. Because it's, it's a give-and-take process, like we said. It's Obviously, there's strong Beauty and the Beast parallels here, which we'll get into a little bit later in the episode. But to specifically <laughs> compare it to the 90s Disney Beauty and the Beast, you know, one thing that a lot of people, including me, like about that story is that, you know, Belle isn't just a wallflower. She does push back when the Beast is, is just an arrogant jerk. And Sansa does the same here to Sandor when he's just calling her a little bird that repeats everything. She says, as Jeff noted, that's unkind. You're frightening me. I want to go. So she's, she's willing to stand up for herself. She's, she's not just, oh, I can fix him, which I think would make this chapter a lot worse. She's, she, yes. she knows that Sandor is unpleasant and rude and aggressive and frightening to be around. And it's only when he reveals a vulnerability and a need that she stops being frightened of him and, and starts finding him worthy of reaching out. And I really love her line when she does reach out to him. He was no true knight regarding Gregor. That's <laughs> that's just a perfect line. From Sansa. Exactly. For the story as a whole, but especially for these two. Because, I mean, you could see it as pure naivete if you want to be uncharitable about it, which Sandor certainly does in the moment, at least, when he, he laughs. But if you take it in context with a line like, say, if I'm ever queen, I'll make them love me from the Blackwater, I think it resonates a little deeper, what Sansa's saying here. It's that... What she loves about knighthood, what Sandor loved about knighthood before Gregor shoved his face in the fire, that doesn't belong to Rhaegar. That doesn't belong to the crown. That doesn't belong to the official institutions of knighthood. It doesn't depend on the sir in front of your name. It's a value. It's something you believe in, and that belongs to you, the individual. And you can uphold it even if the world sucks, especially if the world sucks. No chance and no choice, after all. Right. And I think that's a really powerful message that sums up the whole series for me. This, This chapter breaks down that beautiful image, but then it builds it back up. By the end of the chapter, you can see a glimpse of what it would look like if it really worked. Absolutely, man. Like that's, I think it's perfectly put. I got nothing else to add. That's awesome. All shucks. Aw, boys. <laughs> we have these moments, Chloe, in this podcast where we have to like, where I just like sit here in my little uh, beach chair. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> For Christmas, like, I know oh, what man. we're getting you. We're getting you a nice chair, like a daddy chair. Like you're going to have like an executive chair, Jeff. No, I, was gonna, I need the, need the I was, beach chair. I was going to say we're getting him a new beach chair. <laughs> okay, we'll get him the daddiest of beach chairs. I'll Google we'll, we'll it right get now. like a, a late. Does Lazy Boy make a beach chair? I'm gonna look. I into bet this. they do. I, I bet, bet there's. I do. bet there's like a cup holder and it vibrates. Oh, I'm Ooh. already there. Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right, I'm on Google. While, Chlo- while Chloe shops for Jeff, yeah, I think it's I think the that, love I have of my life. That I think like that, a zero gravity chair, Jeff. Have you ever tried those? Those are nice. I am so lost. All right, well, while we all picture Jeff in space. Uh, I think that pretty much uh, wraps up our summary of the chapter itself. We can move into our uh, likes and dislikes within the chapter. Yes, we sure can. Uh, so I figure we'll uh, we'll do this the the courteous way. We'll let Chloe go first and talk about her likes and dislikes of the chapter. Absolutely. Yeah, I would love to. 
I'm going to keep my likes and dislikes very light. I have a lot to go still in this great episode <laughs> of Not A Cast. Uh, what? No? Jeff, unfortunately, incited some verbal violence for me, so... <laughs> he wanted So it. jot that down? Jot that down. Uh, in my <laughs> likes, you know, what's not to like about this chapter, right? Like, there are mm-hmm. knights, there's fair maidens. All of it ends with the deconstruction of that concept. The chapter ends with Sansa beginning to understand how the world she's been thrust into works, and that understanding travels on through the following chapters and books up till A Feast for Crows, even to The Winds of Winter when Sansa plans her own tourney. My dislikes, of course, (sighs) this is a big one, and I didn't know what I was going to choose for this. I was very (laughs) conflicted, but my big choice for dislike is I get that it is a fantasy story, and Loras Terrell's goddamn near impossible horse blanket weaved together of roses <laughs> that he sits mm-hmm. upon like he's sitting on this it doesn't rip in half while he's at- look like i'm i'm trying to push my suspension of disbelief here but in all seriousness <laughs> it's like it's kind of fun to pick at we just finished all these soc chapters for girls gone canon and yes the it's fantasy excuse only goes so far like the herons they they go to war on stilts in the slaver cities yeah. like uh, it's things like these where i'm like george i get it it's fantasy but george 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 i just want to talk about this george loris's butt is just that magical it doesn't rip or tear the roses at all the roses just delicately support him <laughs> with like a gentle sigh wonderfully said on your like chloe by the way i think every Thanks. every word of that was great yeah I, I I was I was giving it a little bit of thought. And I didn't actually put it in the document what my like was, but I was as I was l- listening to the whole conversation. I think my like for this chapter is very much related to the tournament aspect of it. You know, as folks who read George's Not a Blog might be aware of, George R. R. Martin is a huge NFL fan. You don't I know. say. It might come as a as a shock to some of you all that yes. when you click on the Not a Blog, it's not detailed posts about where he is and his progress in the winds of winter. <laughs> a lot of his posts are about things like the NFL, and that's great. It's fine, right? Anyone can write and read about that. What I get from this um, this description of the tournament itself, it reads almost like. You know, you're you're pre-gaming the the NFL game itself. You've got all the people setting up outside with their Packers or Ravens or, in George's case, the Giants and Jets banners. Everyone's tailgating out there, drinking booze and having a good time. And then the actual <laughs> tournament itself, everyone's cheering and watching as these huge giant men in armor or in pads, football pads, you know, run at each other or race at each other on horses and collide with each other and... Yeah, I think it's 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 cool. I think uh, you know I'm I'm a big sports fan. I like the sports ball, and uh, you know it's this sports ball in this case is a tournament, and the tilting is just a, a lot of fun to 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 kind of get a hold of. And I think that's you know it's a motif that George will repeat from time to time. I think it's funny that Sansa's first chapter in a Clash of Kings opens with a mockery of a tournament, which is an interesting point. It's the tournament as a as a motif is going to be repeated over and over and over again in Sansa's story, but it gets better and better and better, too, in my opinion. The Tournament of Nats, I believe, is how Sandor refers to it in Sansa's first <laughs> Clash does, of Kings chapter. Which I'm I'm saying right now, that's going to be the title for our episode. Just a I think little, that's a great a little spoiler warning for you all. That's going to be, that's going to be a, <laughs> a Sansa year. and Clash of Kings. But yeah, I think eight years, late 2019. 
but yeah, I agree with the uh, the sports comparison. That is perfectly appropriate for the non sports inclined. It's like eating an edible and watching Battle of the Bands. <laughs> oh gosh. Let's 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 Jeff go with that. Can't even consider that. Settle down. I can't. I know I he doesn't understand. know what the Battle of the Bands is. I get it. Or an edible. Or what an edible I, is. I, I know that was the joke. Anyway. <laughs> what is an edible? Can someone tell Jack? Yeah, please, please at me at Lies and Arbor on Twitter to <laughs> let me know what an edible is. He uses a pi- he uses a picture of Chloe for his AV. It's a whole thing. It's an in joke. You'll get it. It's yeah. It's it's, it's funny, right? Just funny. tell tell so, Lies and Arbor all about edibles. Anywho, right? That. Exactly. Um, my dislike for this chapter, it's it's more minor. And I do find these middle chapters from A Game of Thrones some of my favorite portions of the chapter. I really love this chapter. I, I should state that up front. I guess is, we're now like two hours in and everybody's who is still listening is a dedicated fan of the Nauticast. So I can let you guys in a little secret that I actually like Sansa's chapters in A Game of Thrones. Oh. It's really interesting. What? Oh, wow. I know. I know. I know. This chapter is fabulous though it's it's so great but i have to have a, a dislike for it much as i had to have one for the catlin chapter i didn't really enjoy the anachronism that's in this chapter and like the timeline when loris gives the rose to sansa stark and the final four champions because in the paragraph before she gets the rose and before littlefinger confronts her it's already indicated who the final four are to go towards the final tilt the next day which is going to come up in her Edward seven chapter but then, then George kind of takes the timeline back to talk about the tilt between Loras and Robar Royce, which seems to be like kind of the penultimate, not the penultimate, but the ultimate event of the day. But we already know by that point that, you know, Robert Royce is, has lost because the final four are Loras, Jamie, Sander, and Gregor. It's not a story killer, but I don't know what the linear, the, what the non-linear storytelling does in the narrative because we already know the end result ahead of the Sansa Loras and Sansa Creepyfinger conversation. So it kind of, for me, it deflates a little bit of dramatic tension that was there for the Robar Loras tilt. Robar is like a really great super minor character is going to be talked about here in a moment. So I would have enjoyed getting a little bit more of like, oh, Robar, he's wearing the bronze, you know, runes of his father and he's he's handsome and stuff like that. And you kind of get him as a comparison to Loras Tyrell. And I don't know, it would have been interesting, I think, to have it actually done in a more linear fashion. I think that's fair. I honestly didn't even notice that until you pointed it out that, uh, he, Martin kind of jumps around with the time. Uh, cause I'm just, it was so caught up in the romance of the moment, but yeah, <laughs> that's fair. It does. It's not quite as, uh, exciting as it could be. Yeah, but it's super minor, really. I mean, I love this chapter. I think it's a fantastic chapter. Guys, I think Jeff likes this chapter. What do you think? I think Jeff likes Sansa a little bit. Just a little bit. And I'm not, like, I'm not trying to cop, like, some positivity about it, but I do feel responsible, partially. You know what I mean? Like, look, I just don't tell anyone, okay? You're just literally don't tell telling everyone. I like everyone. Sansa. You can edit it out, but what I'm saying is. He won't. You always I love won't. Sansa. Deep down. Deep down. Like the daughter that you weren't proud of. I'm proud of my daughters, though. Oh, you love her, is what you just said. He loves I'm her. I'm proud of my actual daughters. Definitely yeah. love Sansa Stark. Alrighty, All right, Evan, you give us your likes and dislikes for this chapter. As I said, this is my favorite chapter in the Game of Thrones. I love it to death. I love pretty much every part of it. But something we didn't really get into is the uh, the specific imagery of Sir Hugh's death is really intense and well written. It's the same kind of vivid cosmic language that Martin uses for the more directly magic heavy chapters. The quote is: "His armor was shiny new. A bright streak of fire ran down his outstretched arm as the steel caught the light. Then the sun went behind the cloud and it was gone. His cloak was blue, the color of the sky on a clear summer's day, trimmed with a border of crescent moons." 
But as, as his blood seeped into it, the cloth darkened and the moons turned red one by one. Which is just a, <laughs> a gloriously just colorful, vivid image in of itself. But it's also the passage that really sold me on our friend LML's theories about Azor High. You know, for the unfamiliar, LML's uh, proposed that uh, Azor High, by creating Lightbringer, was not uh, trying to create a kind of candle in the darkness against the others, but in fact created or was paralleled with a giant apocalyptic disaster that blocked out the sun and created the long night. This image definitely kind of points to that. You get the sun going behind the cloud. You get the moons turning red. Uh, and I think it's it's noticeable because the aforementioned phrase, no man can withstand him line, also applies to Azor Ahai's patron god, Relor. <laughs> if you look at A Storm of Swords, uh, Davos V, quote, Relor chooses such instruments as he requires. The ruby at Melisandre's throat shone redly. His ways are mysterious, but no man may withstand his fiery will. No man <laughs> may withstand him, the queen cried. Or in A Dance with Dragons, John three, the Lord of Light made the sun and moon and stars to light our way and... Gave us fire to keep the night at bay, Melisandre told the wildlings. None can withstand his flames. None can withstand his flames, the queen's men echoed. <laughs> so that same language being used to describe Gregor in this scenario, uh, I think lends credence to LML's idea that this imagery is meant to reflect Azor Ahai and Lightbringer and that part of the legend, because it's the exact same phrase. But even even putting all that aside, it's just a, a really detailed and unshakable image that stuck in my mind the first time I read this chapter, and I've never been able to never been able to get it out. So you remember how like we were talking in that um, Edward Six chapter about whether Tobomot made Santa Clegane's helm? Yes. Is it possible here that Tobomot made Sir Hugh of the Vales's armor here? Because they talk he about is. He, that's dude. Edward pays for that armor. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he does talk about the next chapter. He, he paid for it Tobo. already with his with his life. It's yeah. from Tobo, who also is full of Lightbringer and Azor High imagery himself, as LML has brought up before. So. It all it yeah. all connects. That makes sense. I so, agree. Yeah. My uh, awesome. my one uh, dislike for the chapter is I would have liked to actually hear Cersei's attempt to manipulate Robert into fighting into the melee. I know Robert brings it up a little bit in the next chapter when he's talking to Ned, but it would have been interesting to see how Cersei actually operated in terms of getting Robert to do what she wanted and getting Sansa's perspective on how Cersei was operating in that way. I think could have been interesting. You know, Cersei's arguably the central antagonist of this first book in yeah. that you know she's the one Ned confronts in the God's Wood and she drops the titular Game of Thrones line and she's there when Bran gets thrown out the window and you could argue that Littlefinger is the central antagonist of the book but I think Cersei stands up pretty strongly in that regard sure. but she doesn't have many dialogue scenes so I think it, I think that would have been a nice little addition she's definitely the uh, the queen piece though you know in the whole story oh yeah yeah I, I've always been curious too about this point whether Robert's memory of what Cersei said the, that Cersei forbid me to fight was actually what Cersei had said or what the, Cersei was a little more subtle kind of doing the kind of passive aggressive like I don't really want you to fight tomorrow I think it'd be really bad if you fought sort of thing and I think it would have been more interesting to kind of have that contrast so that we see that Robert is a bit of an unreliable narrator as well and that he's not remembering Cersei's words he's projecting his own meaning into it and his own insecurities about how he's he's going to rust as a, a fat 35-year-old something or another. And I think that's something that would have been interesting to hear. So, yeah, I think it's a... it's Again, it's it's minor, but I think it's a really good point that I would have also liked to have heard Cersei's attempt to manipulate Robert, whether it was more, like, passive-aggressive or whether it was more direct the way that Robert makes it out in Ned's next chapter. No, Robert, you go and fight. I'm just your wife. What does it matter what I think? Go play with your toys. Have fun. Yeah, exactly. That would have been, like, cool. I would have enjoyed that, that bit of dialogue, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, you know, the, the, it's, it's a great point, too, that you make about how 
Cersei has uh, only a few lines in this entire book and a few dialogue scenes. I mean, you have that famous Ned Cersei moment at the Godswood at the end of A Game of Thrones. But that, and you have that moment, too, before that, where Ned and Cersei are talking with Robert there, too, on, uh, on, Robert, on, on Ned's bed, sickbed. But, yeah, she doesn't have a lot of lines. And I do wonder, too, as we talked about in the past, how Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings were written was that George got too far into writing A Game of Thrones and realized it was too long, and so he took about 400 pages from the early part that... He took about 400 pages from A Game of Thrones to become the early part of A Clash of Kings, and I do wonder whether some of those early Tyrion chapters where we get a whole lot of Cersei dialogue were included in that batch that George cut to A Clash of Kings and then kind of rewrote it to be more introductory material for that book. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I think that's a good point. Cersei is much more talkative in the Tyrion chapters, of course, because well, she knows Tyrion and they have a long-standing relationship. But yeah, those dialogue scenes give Cersei much more to do, which is one of the reasons I overall like the King's Landing stuff in Clash a little bit more yes. than in game. But we'll get into that later on. We shall indeed. We shall indeed. So I think that about takes us into our foreshadowing groundwork phase here. Where we're going to talk about a few things here. We have a great major debate, the de- the, the war of our time at the end of this, <laughs> this podcast episode, <laughs> about a certain minor, not really all that interesting theory about Sandra Glee and Sansa Stark. It's not a theory, it's canon. We'll talk about that. It's <laughs> not a theory, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> it pretty much is when you, if you read Tumblr. You're not my real mom, Burnaby Fish. <laughs> She's got you there, buddy. Yeah, yeah, she. I'm done, done. She got me. Cancelled. Um, so kind of like because I enjoy some of the more trivia aspects of A Song of Ice and Fire. This chapter serves as a who's who of minor characters in the book, and, and I'm not talking about your Jamies or Barristans or even your secondary characters like your Sanders or Joffreys or Thoroses. Not secondary characters, minor ones. So if you guys will indulge me for a moment here. I figured I would do a quick casting call of all these minor characters and talk about their fates by the start of the Winds of Winter. Ready? Yes, sounds good. Yes, please here we do, go. buddy. All right, Bronzion Royce. At the end of A Feast for Crows and on into the Winds of Winter, he is alive. He is still leading the anti-Littlefinger coalition in the Vale, and he is working alongside of his son, Andrew Royce, who is another participant in the tourney. His second son, Robar Royce, joins Renly's Rainbow Guard, heroically holds off Renly's men after Renly is killed by the Shadow Baby, and he is subsequently murdered by Loras Tyrell for his heroic actions in defending Brienne in A Clash of Kings. The Malisters, Jason and Patrick. Patrick was captured at the Red Wedding. Blackwater Frey took him up to Seaguard and threatened to hang him unless his father Jason surrendered the castle, and subsequently Jason surrenders the castle to the Freys. Aaron Santagar, he is killed in the riot of King's Landing in A Clash of Kings. He also helps Tyrion out in A Clash of Kings and is seen as a reliable person until he's ultimately killed. Balon Swan, he's appointed to the Kingsguard, charged with Cersei and a Feast for Crows to participate in the murder of Tristane Martell. He is on the road to Starfall for the Dark Star Hunt by the end of A Dance of Dragons, and we'll likely see him again in The Winds of Winter. In fact, I'm 100% sure we're going to see him in The Winds of Winter. Bryce Karen joins with Renly, turns to Stannis, is killed at the Blackwater. The Redwine twins, Horace and Haber, taken hostage to their father's non-participation in the War of the Five Kings by Cersei. Later released after Paxter joins with his liege lord when the Tyrell-Lannister alliance is made. Taken prisoner again by Cersei in her conspiracy against Marjorie, released by Kevin Lannister at the end of A Dance with Dragons. The Freys. Jared. He becomes a pie. Hostine leads the Frey cavalry force against Stannis at the Crofter's Village. Maybe. Danwell. Securing House Derry on behalf of the Lannisters. Eamon. Lord of Riverrun by the end of A Feast for Crows. He's about to get himself red wedding by Lady Stoneheart in The Winds of Winter. Yeah. 
That's all I had. Continue. Perwin becomes one of Rob Stark's guards, is not present at the Red Wedding, likely due to his Stark sympathies. He is present at the Frey Lannister siege of River Run and is noted by Jamie and Davin as being someone of some repute. They like him in some sense. He's probably the best of the phrase. Martin Rivers, leading Rob Stark's outriders in their invasion of the Westerlands, abandons, abandons Rob back at River Run after his marriage to Jane Westerling. We have not heard from him since the start of A Storm of Swords. He's gonna die. And, he, yeah, he's definitely gonna die. <laughs> and finally, Jalabar Zoe. He continues mooching his way through King's Landing through the reigns of Robert, Joffrey, and Tommen, is imprisoned as Marjorie Terrell's lover hilariously by Cersei Lannister at the end, at the midway through A Feast for Crows. Still alive, as far as we know, but I believe it's mentioned that he is still held by the faith, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he's still there, actually. There's so much foreshadowing in all of this. There's so much talk of this. Cersei plots are honestly such a gift for this reason. There's just so much fruition that comes from her goddamn <laughs> craziness, right? Like, <laughs> well so put. Well there's put. a lot of veil foreshadowing that we should go into, for sure. For funsies. Yes. Uh, Please. Sansa seeing... Franz Yon Rice. She constantly sees Franz Yon Rice, even in her current Feast for Crows plot. She is sitting there silently praying. Franz Yon Rice does not recognize her. And on Sir Hugh's death, I want to talk about Sir Hugh as Harold Harding, possibly. Hmm. Right. Interesting, right? Okay. The young knight in the blue cloak was nothing to her. Some stranger from the Vale of Arryn whose name she had forgotten as soon as she had heard it. And now the world would forget his name too, Sansa realized. There would be no song sung for him. That was sad. If you've had a chance to catch up with the the Winds of Winter sample chapters, I'm guessing by now you hopefully have, as the boys tend to reference them all the time. We do? The Elaine chapter is huge. It's like groundbreaking huge. It's... The literal overarching meta of Sansa taking things that she's learned and attempting to put them into play as she hosts <laughs> her very own tourney. But, of course, she isn't really a pro still. She's not ready for this tourney, and there are other machinations at work around her in her bastard status in the Vale, right? Mm-hmm. Go on. So, it's a big basic idea as Sir Hugh, as Harry, the heir in the Vale. Harry the heir is talked about as an up-jumped through the books and that he paid for his position in name and station and isn't actually skilled at arms. Very, all that glitter is not gold, right? Hugh mm-hmm. suffered in trying to advance his station, truthfully. If any person left knows Sir Hugh may have been the one to poison John Aaron, possibly, just happens to control the ins and outs of money and people and also known to bet in tourneys, Littlefinger as Sir Hugh's killer, in the end, indeed makes sense. (laughs) So, connecting these pieces, it's more than likely Sansa will see another death of a boy she didn't actually know that Littlefinger has a reason to kill. Marrying Sansa off to Harry doesn't actually help Littlefinger. If Sweet Robin dies, Harry takes ownership of the Vale, and Harry has Sansa. Sansa will take the North for herself, but where does that leave Harry the heir? Wait for her to birth an heir? Littlefinger kills Harry and takes regency? No. Harry, who will stride out into the list in sparkling, glittering blue armor, isn't probably going to survive, and there's a certain lady who happens to be pretty forlorn that I think might be involved in that death, right? Hey. Ayo. <laughs> <laughs> 
I am talking, of course, of Sir Lynn Corbray and his Valyrian steel sword, Lady Forlorn. There's this idea that Sansa needs to get her claim attached to someone else's to attain power, but honestly, she doesn't. To inspire loyalty in the people, we already have a theme that comes up with significance in A Dance with Dragons, which is Valiant Ned's Precious Little Girl. Where Dad dies for everyone's sins, he left a legacy as a good man who stood for what was right. When he wasn't, you know, broken-legged and weary from trauma and Jamie, etc. And he was a good man, and he was also a good boy. Where did he grow up? Why, of course, the Vale, where his eldest daughter is. Ned <laughs> running through the halls of the Vale with Robert, the good-tempered, quiet wolf to Robert's side, who did as he was told and stood for his people when he could. Sansa's plot is all about her learning the best of both of her parents' worlds from political intrigues and navigating court life to standing up for the people who could not stand for themselves and ruling through love instead of fear. She constantly worries throughout the story about Bronze Zion Royce recognizing her. It comes up several times in the veil and it highlights him here at the tourney. It's super important, it's great storytelling that weaves the lines to connect Sansa's plot throughout her chapters in the book. Hmm. That's really great. I love those parallels. It's interesting to consider how Sansa's role has changed. Obviously, like we said, she's not a passive observer in this chapter. She's a participant and she knows it. But by the time you get to her opening Winds of Winter chapter, she's kind of she's she's the one who came up with the idea of the tourney. She's going around talking yeah. to everyone and keeping their relationships in her mind. So it's it's the same setup, but but she has evolved, and I think that's a great gambit on Martin's part. I had a vague sense of the tourneys being similar, but I had never thought through the parallels between Sir Hugh and uh, Harry the Air, and those are really great. Yeah, I think that's they're they're great parallels for sure. I think my major question about the idea that Sir Hugh dies at the tournament is what is Littlefinger gaining from Sir Hugh's death at that juncture? And I, I don't want to go into like the logistics necessarily of it. I think you mean Harry, buddy. Excuse me. What is... <laughs> All right, I think I'm just going to like just hang up my headphones right now and that's it. Uh, hush. <laughs> I'm you done. Were, you had a great point to make, I'm sure. You're well, I'm not sure. Great, Maybe. We know Maybe. you're a fake A Song of Ice and Fire fan, but... I'm like the worst of this podcast, man. I'm just gonna yeah. Josh, whatever. Shut up. I, I love you. I'm love fond you guys of you. Too. Carry on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're fond. Jeff, fond. Jeff, shut the up. Word you said know so much. that you're our favorite, and you just wanted it favorite. all on recording. So here it is. Uh yeah. Okay, so <laughs> let me back up and start again. What does Littlefinger gain from killing Harry the heir at this juncture? Like he's still the, the the Wayne Woods and all of them are on the fence about whether they're going to back Littlefinger or not. And marrying Harry to Sansa is the glue that's going to bind some of those Lords Declarant to Littlefinger, and that's going to be important for his plot to get the veil to declare for Sansa and to march on up. And you know, also you get Littlefinger's villainous monologue in Elaine's second chapter in A Feast for Crows, where he talks about how he's going to announce Sansa Stark at the marriage of Harry. But I guess maybe your point, and man, I don't want to speak for you, but maybe your point will be that, as we know, um, what the fuck's his name? Lynn Corbray is apparently going sideways on Littlefinger to some extent is acting as a double or potentially even a triple agent, and he could be the fly in the ointment, so to speak, for Littlefinger's plan to announce Sansa to the whole of the Vale and get them to march north. 
which I think is still going to happen one way or the other. But I do wonder about the logistics of it all. Believe it or not, I don't think that Lynn Corbray has as much in common with Sansa's reveal as you might. I think the important part here is actually Sir Shadrich of the, hmm. the Shady Glen. We see him in Brienne's plot in A Feast for Crows. Uh, his sigil is white and red. Like the weirwood, it's a mouse with red eyes, white and red. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I actually think that Sir Shadrich, who is looking for a bag of gold, according to himself and his adventures from King's Landing, he is going on a journey for Varys's, uh effect to find Sansa Stark for a bag of gold. And I think that Sir Shadrich is going to get caught while he's trying <laughs> to steal Sansa, and she'll be revealed because Miranda Royce is already pretty... She knows, dude. She, yeah. uh, Sansa's, oh, yeah. she's told that Sansa is a religious daughter of Littlefinger, a bastard daughter who's very religious, raised among septas in a sept. And the first thing she asks Sansa is, Have you heard about this bastard in the north, Jon Snow? He's running the Night's Watch. And Sansa's like, I know all about Jon Snow. And you're like, Sansa, sweetie. <laughs> this, that was the test and failed. And, Stop name dropping, kiddo. Right, like he's like <laughs> Jon Snow. He sounds brave because he's kind of my brother, and I love him. And you're like Sansa. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but Randa pulls it out of her, and that's not exactly what a church girl should know, right? Like a church girl True. with like an up jumped dad. True that. True that. Yeah, I, I do love how in um, to talk about Shadrach for a second. I think he's a funny minor character. I do love how in that Elaine chapter how he's constantly like creeping up on Sansa like he's just like creeping up like pre- mm-hmm. preparing mm-hmm. to like snatch her up and take her but every single time she turns around he's there and he's participating in the tourney too it's like yeah I, I could see him being a definite playing a definite role in the reveal of Sansa Stark and yeah I think it's that's great I th- it, it helps to assuage my doubt that Harry will die at the tournament I think Harry dying at the tournament will be great <laughs> Terrific. I'm all about it. Sansa will feel absolutely nothing about it, and she'll wonder why they didn't write songs about it. Mm, so sad. So very, very sad. Mm-hmm. You know, as we all know, oh, as no. we all know, oh, no. Sansa Stark and Santa Clegane will never, ever get together in the books. They'll never interact again. They'll never see each other after the end, after Blackwater. It's this thing, right? I mean, like you have these crazy fan, they have this crazy fan theory called San San that's out there, which is this crazy theory that Sandra Clegane and Sansa Stark are going to, I I don't know. It's kind of ambiguous what, what the people who believe in Sansa on one, I've heard multiple theories about it things like you know they're going to get married someday down the road and be together that they're you know going to interact maybe one more time that Sansa will or that Sander will lay his life down for Sansa one last time all sorts of foolishness in my opinion that we're going to get and um you know the nice thing about this is that I'm I've got no one I've got a great source for my ideas that Sansa will never happen and who is that source that source is George R.R. motherfucking Martin, who has made several comments about Sansan. Am I right? I don't like you personally. 
That's just my actual personal feeling about you, Jeff. That, that's fine. You don't have to like me. That, I don't need to be liked. I don't want your like. I don't want the love of people. So. Both of you have problems. Carry on. He literally started this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, that's what adults <sighs> say. That's true. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Sit down, Everett. I am <laughs> sitting down, ma'am. <laughs> Jeffrey? Says the late says Jeffrey? the lady who's literally lying down right now. If you had a yes, job exactly. all the time, you would do. Jeffrey, are you gonna do this thing or what? I'm ready. I'm here. So I feel like you're just George R. Martin. Dancing, so how about you give it some real Jeffersonness? Okay, you want you want the real beefish nature. So here we go. Oh. <clears throat> Sansan, as a theory. I see the parallels between the Beauty and the Beast story that George R. R. Martin was writing in the 1980s and the Sansa Sanders story, but I also see the things that I was referencing earlier where George has said things like, quote, I was surprised by the number of women who reacted positively to characters like Theon and the Hound as dashing romantic figures. The Sansan thing kind of took me by surprise, I must admit. He said that at Archipelicon in 2015, a few years before that. He said... And I do know all these people out there who are, as they as they call themselves, the Sand Sand fans. They want to see Sander and Sansa get together at the end. So that's interesting. I play within the books for sure. There's something there. It's still interesting to see how many people have responded too. And he said that in an interview in 2012. So from all the evidence I've seen of George R. R. and the way he teases mysteries, I've never seen him say something like, ah, yes, I've seen the theories that Rhaegar and Lyanna are John's parents. He's typically much more vague, saying things like, you'll find out about John's parentage or keep reading, as we see over and over again in the Sospake Martin archives. That George is referencing this theory by name, is speaking to it in a skeptical tone, and he's addressing this theory, you know, in in these interviews. And if you become one of our patrons, you get access to our show notes where we provide the links to the videos where George is talking about Sansan and is quote unquote taken by surprise about it. Makes me wonder whether it will ultimately prove true. Just just to get in my thoughts on the three real quick before I turn this over to Chloe. Uh, I think I think I think the the breadth and fervency of the reaction to their dynamics surprised him. I wonder if this is something maybe he was hoping to surprise us with, and that he didn't think maybe people would necessarily pick up on it, and he would be able to lead us to it with some kind of oh that's an interesting twist. I didn't expect them to get together, but then everyone kind of picked up on the dynamic. But as he says, it's definitely in there. And he, I'm, I'm not convinced by his protestations here. He had to know that while writing it. If you read the Blackwater scene, it's just, it's just too blatant. And he, it's, he gender flipped this exact same trope with Jamie and Brienne, so he clearly knows he's playing with it. And even after Sansa and Sandor have, have parted ways, look at how Sandor talks about Sansa to Arya in A Storm of Swords. Look at the, look at the fact that the elder brother seems to know about Sansa Star considerably more than he should. Like, clearly Sandor has been, on his days when he can talk anyway, has been talking to the older brother about Sansa. She had an impact on him. So my guess is that Sansan may have been endgame, romantically, sexually speaking, back when the five-year gap was on, and Sansa was going to be 18 years old at the beginning of book four, so it wouldn't be horrifying to read. Now, though, (laughs) now I hope it's not. Unless it's like a brand vision 
hand-waving. They get together many years later when they're both adults and have achieved something resembling emotional literacy sort of thing. I'd be fine with that. I think if they go to bed together on the page, I'm going to have to put the book down. And at, least yeah, for that, think, at least for that chapter. Yeah, I think I would skip over that chapter as as I often do with these Sansa chapters. No, I'm kidding. I don't skip over Sansa oh chapters. Oh my anymore. god. Anymore. Get, anymore. Get out of this That's house. Fired. <laughs> I'm not in your house, dude. <laughs> I'm fine. Get out of get out of your house, Jeff. Jeff, where's Duke? <laughs> oh, he's he's uh my dog is my dog is down here next to me. And he agrees with me. Wait, he thinks wait, that wait. Sansan is not a real you, thing. So that old hound? He's not a hound. He's a yeah. uh, he's a pit bull. You can't you can't make your pets have your opinions. That's, that's what, what children for. are for. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah Libby she's agrees a good with me. Girl. There you go. <laughs> that's perfectly appropriate. Anyway, anyway, Chloe. I've take been it away. summoned for this fight, and I'm really sorry for my response because it's about five pages and you asked for this, so... She's already apologizing. At the top of the text, I would just like to mention that in the Game of Thrones Blackwater commentary, Lena Headey and Peter Dinklage appear on it, and Peter Dinklage sings the Beauty and the Beast theme, while Sansa asks Sandor, why are you here? And Lena Headey responds with, because he loves you, stupid girl. Because it's canon. Because Lena Headey said so. And I feel like you two can't argue that, first off, because she's so hmm. wonderful. So, so the TV show is canon? George wrote it, so it's canon. If George wrote it, it's canon. You know it. George wrote the episode commentary no, that Lena Headey and Peter Dinklage did? The episode, the George wrote, wrote. He oh, wrote, wrote oh right. Mm-hmm. And they know that Go it's on. canon because they, they watched it. That which George wrote. So, a chance to fight Jeff. It's all I've ever wanted in my past, like, four years of friendship. I'm excited. Buckle up, boys. We're about to dig in. So, let me preface this entire thesis statement and essay with, I do not ship Sansan in the present. Thank you very much. Not the A Feast for Crows, A Dance of Dragons present. But it is very canon and has been the entire time. I think that coupled together, after they both have healed... Sandor in the Quiet Isles, Sansa in the Vale maturing. Definitely a great idea. I don't think we'll ever truly get a true <laughs> Sansa moment besides maybe Sandor's death, which we will get to after this 8,000 word essay that I'm about to write you. Uh, I want to <laughs> hit back on the 2012 comments from George that Jeff commented on. The quote, of course, was, I do know all these people out there. Who are they, as they call themselves, the Sansan fans? They want to see Sandor and Sansa get together at the end, so it's interesting. I've played with it in the books. There's something there, which, by the way, is a song for Beauty mm-hmm. and the Beast. It's still interesting to see how many people have responded to. So I feel like Jeff was leaving off a pretty interesting precursor. He discusses the fan mail George gets for women who love people like Jamie and Sandor initially, and calls them both villains. Now, as most people would love to contest, Jamie Lannister isn't looked at as a villain so much anymore, unless you're poor Quentin or at Lies and Arbor. Smarter people, like us... I believe he's a villain, too. Oh, he's Jeff agrees, I guess. Smarter people, like us, would agree that, yes, Jamie is still <laughs> not exactly a good guy. 
Some people would even go as far to say Jamie's on a redemption arc because they're wrong and they are also bad. <laughs> so Sandor Clegane is actually the one who is on a redemption arc and his plot is tied directly to the Stark sisters. If we are going to cherry pick some SSMs together, which Jeff's favorite activity <laughs> happens to be, we should throw together a couple others and some quotes from the book as well. Will Sandor and Sansa meet? George in 2008 said, Why, the Hound is dead, and Sansa may be dead as well. There's only a lane stone. And again, someone else in 2005 asked, Will we see Sandor again? Especially in replacing Sansa's lost wolf? Yes, we will see Sandor in the next book, I think he said, and Gregor. After that, he said he can't comment on the rest, which of course we know what happened to Sandor after the rest of that in A Face for Crows. So I would argue a handful of things with, with what Jeff said. These so spanked Martins are worded as vaguely as John's parentage is referred to. These so spanked Martins also don't need to be that vague as John's parentage because we see Sansa think of Sandor over four books and their relationship is displayed on the page. This isn't a song of burdened dogs, though it should be. I would read that. It is a song of ice and fire. John's parentage versus Sansa's affection for Sandor is a very completely different thing. So jot that down, Jeff. Personally. Okay. No. <laughs> so on top of that, Sandor is mentioned 96 times in the book series in Sansa's chapters. She even talks about him after not seeing him since A Clash of Kings in The Winds of Winter Lane 2 and in her feast chapters as well. She thinks of him, of kissing her, which we all know in the infamous Unkiss and her misremembrance, which George's actually inferred will come into play someday in SSM where he talks about Sansa misremembering Joffrey's sword right, as lion's paw slash tooth, but later on it's revealed George actually was wrong. He has Arya misremember Joffrey's sword in this kind of so spake Martin, so he was the actual unreliable narrator, believe it or not. That doesn't happen often. <laughs> that was an accidental. He does say, though, that this is an inconsistency with A Storm of Swords more than an outright error. In A Storm of Swords, Sansa thinks the Hound kissed her before leaving her room and King's Landing. In A Clash of Kings, no kiss is mentioned in the scene, though Sansa did think he was about to do so. Not every inconsistency is a mistake, actually. Some are quite intentional. File this one under Unreliable Narrator, and feel free to ponder its meaning. George R. R. Martin, 2002. Chef? <laughs> Do you have any words for yourself? I don't have too many things to say there. And then I, I will say that I did give the quote that George had said that there's something there and it's something that he has played with. So in that interview, it's it's going back and forth in that 2012 interview between the people's who are interviewing. It's a man and woman. I don't know their actual names. Unfortunately, I should have done the research for that. And they're saying, well, I, I think that's... I would be into that is what the, the, the female interviewer says. And George says, oh, well, you know, there's something there. You know, it's still interesting to see how many people have responded to. So I, I, I do give 
the idea of credence that George is playing with it, I think one of the things that I look askance at is the massive age disparity between the two and that Sansa is 13, 14 by this, by the end of A Feast for Crows into the Winds of Winter. It, yeah. I, I don't actually remember her actual age. I think she advances two winter, years or so in the She's going on 14 and she's taking 14 as her bastard like age, but she's 13. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. I, I think that I think I like Emmett's point, too, that had a five-year gap occurred and you have an 18, 17 or 18-year-old Sansa in the story, it makes more sense there. Now, I do see the points where, and I think you're going to bring this up, so I apologize for preempting you, that in A Storm of Swords, that a dog follows Sansa on up to the Vale, and that becomes a point for Sansa to remember, and she's not sure why she takes care of this dog. At the same time, though, I do wonder about the mechanics of it, how Sansa and Sandra are going to interact down the road. What is going to be the trigger mechanism that George integrates into the narrative to bring the two characters back together? George has said things like Tyrion and Daenerys will intersect in some way later in The Winds of Winter. It seems like George has the mechanics in place for the two of them to interact because, as we know, at the end of A Dance of Dragons, Tyrion is outside of Marine. Daenerys is up in the Dothraki Sea, but it seems that Daenerys is reclaiming her fire and blood identity, and Tyrion happens to be in the same location that most of her people are at. So I see a place where those two can interact. What I'd be looking for is the mechanism that George would use to bring these two characters back together, and I don't necessarily see that quite yet. But I'm willing to be open to the rest of your arguments. Good, because you have a little bit to go, buddy, so buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Sandor, Sansa, and Arya's arcs all happen to kind of revolve around mercy. The simple theme of mercy. Sansa sang to Sandor, gave him the original gift of mercy, which he then teaches mercy to Arya, her sister, begging her for it himself while he's pretty much confessing that he wanted Sansa, the pretty sister. That all loses its luster in the show counterpart of Littlefinger explaining it to Sansa originally, where Sandor gives his pass to Arya. But we'll move on from that. I'm a little bitter. I'll always be bitter. (laughs) And I do want to give some House Clegane exposition. So House Clegane is a little dramatic and on purpose. The sister of House Clegane, the young sister who was never named of Gregor and Sandor, dies in an accident that most believe was San- was Gregor, though it's very hush-hush. The mom dies, unsaid how. It doesn't seem related to Gregor for sure for once. Could be childbirth, it could be anything, <laughs> though. The dad is killed by Gregor. He mm-hmm. inherits the keep. He inherits Clegane keep. And Sandor has nowhere to run. He becomes a Lannister lackey. He works his way up to the ranks and was at the sack of King's Landing. So, of course, and the man breaks. This is why the broken man's speech is so important, showing what happens to men that become dogs for their masters with nowhere to run, fighting and drinking and fighting and drinking until they can forget it all or die bloody in a ditch. So, of course, when Sandor meets Sansa Stark and eventually Arya Stark, Sansa is the first to show Sandor kindness. A certain mother's kindness brings a few things to mind. And I think it's important to look at how Sandor looks. 
He has dark hair, a long face, and gray eyes. So we can assume that the younger Clegane sister that Sandor lost would have dark hair and the same sort of spark in her that the Clegane brothers had. Hopefully nothing like Gregor's. She may resemble another <laughs> little girl with gray eyes and dark hair. That's right. The unnamed Clegane sister reminds Sandor of Arya Stark. You are very welcome for that sadness. <laughs> Great. Anytime, Thank you for my heartbreak. Anytime, boys. Yeah. Please, Sandor Clegane rasped, cradling his arm. I'm burned. Help me. Someone help me. He was crying. Please. Arya looked at him in astonishment. He's crying like a little baby, she thought. Arya six, a storm of swords. A storm of swords. Not only can we assume Arya looks like his family, but there's a lot of subtext in Sansa singing of mother's mercy to Sandor when his knife's at her throat in a clash of kings. She's the first person in his 13 years in the capital to show Sandor kindness to tell him, you didn't actually deserve this, it wasn't your fault. In her chambers at the Battle of the Blackwater, he's reduced to kind of blubbering mess, realizing what monstrosities he's committed when he breaks finally and he leaves, but not after trying to save the little girl in front of him like he wishes he could have saved his little sister. Not to mention Sandor and Sansa also have the same prefix to their names, San, 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 however you want to pronounce it, it's a thing. Sandor straight up talks about how Sansa is blossoming into a young woman in a, a little more aggressive of a tone, I suppose. Of course, when speaking to Arya, talks about how he dreams of how he had a song from Sansa, which is a euphemism for sex, um, by the way. And of course, Sansa dreams of him in her wedding bed in A Feast for Crows, which the quote is, And she dreamed of her wedding night, too, of Tyrion's eyes devouring her as she undressed. Only then he was bigger than Tyrion had any right to be. And when he climbed into the bed, his face was scarred only on one side. I'll have a song from you, he rasped. And Sansa woke and found the old blind dog beside her once again. I wish that you were lady, she said. Which is not to make us forget her petting the old blind dog and saying, you sad old hound, either. Mm -hmm. I see you, George. Mm -hmm. I see him, for sure. <laughs> and there's so much more, like the sexual language around the Battle of the Blackwater. The wetness, the raw, the harshness, all of it. It's not written like an innocent playtime story. Let's not even get into the cloak symbolism, especially come a feast for crows. Why Sansa kept it, she could not say. Girl, we know why you kept that cloak. Let's be real. Okay, let's all three of us be real of why Sansa kept that cloak. And Sandor even taunts Arya, I saved your sister. She sang me a sweet little song on the road, which, of course, that means make that girl scream like the gods ain't looking old or new. And <laughs> when he's begging Arya for the gift of mercy, he reveals, of course, he didn't get a song from her sister. He didn't save her. He stood there in his white cloak and he let them beat her. He never touched her. He should have. He should have when he had the chance. Of course, we see similar with Jamie against Ares and Rayla. So many vows 
you know, they make you swear and swear, but Sandor refused to swear. He still tried more than Jamie did, for certain, as we know, but with regards to Emmett's point earlier, I think Sansan was written out with a five-year gap. There's no way to justify it. Sandor is spending his time in the Quiet Isles, and Sansa is spending her time very nearby in the Vale, learning political intrigues. Sansa is definitely a candidate in a battle or fight against the others, however you present it, and Sandor will come back into the fray after his gravedigger scene, in my opinion. Sandor is the man that taught Sansa how to lie. He protected her in King's Landing. He was the only Kingsguard who didn't actually beat her in A Clash of Kings, a small reminder that that one beating scene in the TV show doesn't account for the canon that Joffrey commanded each Kingsguard to beat Sansa during her story in King's Landing, and it didn't just happen occasionally. He wanted Sandor wanted to try and save Sansa from King's Landing. Sansa, is it endgame? No, definitely not. Their characters directly affect the other, though, and Sandor's arc couldn't exist without Sansa as a point of view. Not only does he serve as a pseudo-protective paternal figure for Sansa in King's Landing, he is overall the man in court who respects her wishes, he asks her to go north with him, and when she says no, he leaves respectfully. He covers her tracks in helping her lie at Joffrey's name day in A Clash of Kings, even in corridors with Tyrion. As Emmanuel Kant says, Happiness is an ideal of the imagination rather than reason. No, Sansa and Sandor don't have a sequence revealing their emotions together, but Sansa begins to base her ideas after a true knight, which is Sandor. She enhances her imagination to what may or may not have happened with him throughout the books. Her POV adds depth and dimensionality for the gruff, scarred man who has been to Helen back and provides foundation for Arya's adventures with him post-Blackwater. She prays for Sandor at the Blackwater to find his peace, and his finding the Quiet Isles is the answer to that prayer. Not only does Sandor help Sansa mature in court, through lying and learning to protect herself, and fending for herself and looking for a route home, and he respects her choices and such, as she begins to mature sexually, she thinks of him in every man she meets, and thinks of what he the first good man she truly met, which says a lot, do better, a song of ice and fire men, <laughs> would do or say or act like. So, Jeffrey, Jeff, Jeffleston, <laughs> the writer who wrote on the TV show Nominee. Beauty and the Beast in 1987, accidentally made the main princessy character fall for a beast, an animal. Okay, Jeff. And two quotes from the book I want to leave you two on is, he is no true knight. But he saved me all the same, she told the mother. Save him if you can, and gentle the rage inside him. And if you need something from a true knight's perspective, there are many sorts of outlaws, just as, just as there are many sorts of birds. A sandpiper and a sea eagle both have wings, but they are not the same. This is going to be the stunned silence that people accuse me of with the, <laughs> with the LML episodes okay. that we have at the end. <laughs> Drop... Drop the mic and walk away. Do your away. best, Jeff. Do your best. I will say that you make an excellent case for Sansan as a thing. What I didn't hear, though, is how you think they're going to interact. What is going to be the oh, point in their story? Yes. And I think, the, and I think this is this is important for me, and I think for a lot of readers too, is that Sanders Sander Clegane's story, as you stated so eloquently, is a story of redemption. It is not 
the quote unquote redemption arc of Jamie Lannister, which is not a redemption arc, as you quite well put it. It is a legitimate redemption arc where Sandra Clegane goes from being Joffrey's dog to saving Sansa Stark to being a better version of himself than he is currently. And I think him ending his arc at the Quiet Isle is a beautiful story of redemption where these where he can you're shaking your <laughs> head, but that's okay. Where Sandra Clegane has a full arc, as a full story from soup to nuts, he has a redemption story that is good and has a place where I don't see him getting out of the Quiet Isle, and I would be happy if the if Sandra Clegane's story ends with him at the Quiet Isle, forever living on in peace and harmony with the gods. I, guess. I also think that in a way, Sandor's arc would be beautiful, ending at the Quiet Isle. He would find peace. The mother would help him find peace. But I think that with his history with fire. That is a thing the show did get correct, that Sandor will come back into the fray. Uh, R'hllor is not done with Sandor Clegane. He survived the fire several times. <laughs> and I think, if anything, one thing we can expect from the end of Sandor Clegane is one last little bird speech. One last Sandor Clegane saving a Stark sister against the cold, against the night, against the others maybe even against his brother if uh, many people believe Clegane Bowl. I don't believe Clegane Bowl so much as I believe that there is a good intensive kind of emotion of Sandor versus Gregor and a true knight against a false knight against a knight that was of course as we've talked about knighted by Rhaegar Targaryen the same man that killed Rhaegar Targaryen's family that he left in the Red Keep alone I think that it's important to look at, in the end, Sandor Clegane will definitely save a Stark sister from the darkness, from the others, whatever it is. I think that a, a true knight has one last stage to get through. That is fair enough. And I will look forward to a dream of spring, I yeah, guess, when this would, would happen, potentially in the books. Like beginning, I guess? One fourth in? I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I mean, I guess we can assume, as we talked about before, that Sansa will get to the north with the Vale armies at her back, and back to Winterfell too. I think it's important for the story that all the Starks return to Winterfell. And if the show is any indication, Sandra Clegane is also in the north with the Brotherhood Without Banners on that wild ride, as we found out north of the Wall, and surviving going north of the Wall and returning back through the Wall and hopefully at some point, potentially showing up in Winterfell. So I will look forward to Sansa and Sanders' interactions in Season 8, if they occur, which I have to imagine they will. And, you know, I will be happy to be wrong. I will say that. I don't mind being wrong as long as it's a good story, right? I think that's the important takeaway for any type of theory, whether you agree or disagree with it. The story that George is writing and that is being adapted for the TV show should have some resonance as as an as an emotion as uh, have some resonance emotionally and have some ability to build on the characters that we know and love in this story and you know i think it would be fine it would be fine it would be fine if sansa and sandra interact so long as they don't freaking get married and like live out their life their lives why in are happiness. you so I, hateful it's not hateful it's just 
it's a variety of reasons, but I think the biggest one being that if they come together, that it has to be a place where Sandra Clegane dies. I can see it having an emotionally resonant, I can see there being an emotionally resonant conclusion to Sandra Clegane's life and that he lays down his life for Sansa Stark one last time and that being an expression of love that is beyond the simple romantic, that is that kind of sacrificial love. And I think that's the type of story that George writes in many ways in A Song of Ice and Fire of individuals sacrificing themselves for innocence, for the greater good, and that's seen as a good in the story. I would I would read that story. I would enjoy that story so long as I don't I fuck. Jeff, I agree with almost everything you said besides the fucking bit. <laughs> that sounds about right. Thanks. Just in general. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we came to a partial ground. Jeff, Jefferson, Jefferson. Still not my name. I literally coined both of them, so. (sighs) Anything you want to add, Emma, to this discussion? I think I could only take away from it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, buddy, take us home. I think that pretty much wraps us up, folks, for Sansa 2, Game of Thrones. Hope you enjoyed it. It's my favorite chapter ever, (laughs) clearly. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, listen to us on SoundCloud or Podbean or wherever you find your fine podcasts. If you haven't checked out our Patreon, it's at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can find us at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, and our email is notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. Me personally, you can find me at poorquentin or at poorquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brendan B. Fish, and you can find me at, on Reddit as Brendan B. Fish, and my website is warsandpoliticsadviceandfire.com. Chloe, tell your tell our listeners where hey, they can find you. Thanks so much again for having me, you guys. I had a blast tonight. I love chatting with Jeff and Emmett. They're fun. Uh, you can find me on the internet as at Liza Narber on Twitter and on Tumblr writing meta-analysis about the series. You can also find me on the podcast Girls Gone Canon. Eliana from Maester Monthly. She's wonderful. Love her so much. So give us a listen on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, you name it. And you can also find me as Drunk, A Song of Ice and Fire History on Twitter and YouTube. We do videos, we do tweets, whatever. And please, more than anything, tune into Nauticast. Thank you so much, you guys, for having me on. This was a blast. I love hanging out with you guys. Thanks for coming on. It was a great time. It was a real pleasure, and and you know, despite our <laughs> mild disagreement, I think I, I we we loved having you on. I love hearing your your opinions and takes on things because you definitely expand my knowledge of the series and give me a perspective that I didn't normally have. And I think that's something that I always you know when I do these episodes and with with Emmett, I always pull that from his takes on these chapters, and it's always great to get yours as well because you're expanding my my brain <laughs> to help me think about this series in new and exciting ways. And you know seven years after Dance with Dragons is released so pulling, you guys are pulling new stuff that's just kind of blowing my fucking mind and I love it so thank you so much for coming on so join us next time for the conclusion of the hands turning in a chapter Chloe did a terrific job with over at Girls Gone Canon and that is Eddard yes. 7 yeah absolutely it's going to be a lot of fun man can't wait to do that wrap up the hands turning and get on into that excellent Varas and Eddard conversation at the end of the chapter one of my favorite outros and one of my favorite conclusions to a chapter for sure mine as well so thanks everyone for listening to us and we will see you guys next week take care everybody